0: gone from 200 followers on Instagram to 1 million in, in nine weeks. I just had tasted the failure so much that I wanted that success. One of the biggest things was going back to, to work, you know, I went back to A&E. I am working in a position where I'm in the research department of a very busy hospital in A&E in London. The mortality rate with COVID is around 1%. I am seeing that percentage of people who are the sickest who are in the hospital i could hear in his voice instantly that something really bad happened i just said straight away like who's who's dying it was weird the whole world like closed in and i can't explain it It sounds very dramatic but it was like almost a spotlight came onto me in that moment and i was like no it can't be i just couldn't believe it that's the thing about suicide or you know about when these things happen it can happen out of nowhere and for everyone around that person is that guilt that you carry i think forever (laughs) ask yourself honestly when is the last time you genuinely sat down and thought about what you want to do in life what actually is your purpose what makes you happy and if you haven't done it in the last year or so do it we had a phone call again and she said it's back I'm like what do you mean the cancer's back what do you say to someone who is dying in the next couple of weeks what can you say a lot of it's non-verbal you have a hug and you just share that moment don't you but when you walk out of that room it's like wow I'm not seeing her again
1: Dr Alex George, you may know him from Love Island. You may know him as one of the most well-known and doctors in our country, or you may know him as a government advisor to youth mental health appointed by Boris Johnson last year. Alex knows a whole lot about happiness, about the things that make us unhappy and about how we should be living if you want to live a truly fulfilling life. In this conversation, you'll come to realize that we are so far away from how we should be living. And that in order to get there, we might have to redesign the entirety of the society we live in. That's a belief that I have. This conversation energised me, it inspired me, it brought tears to my eyes, it gave me absolutely everything. And again, if there's a reason why I started this podcast, it's this conversation. Without further ado, I'm Stephen Bartlett, and this is The Diary of a CEO. I hope nobody's listening, but if you are, then please keep this to yourself. Alex, I've um, read a ton about you over the last uh, couple of weeks, months, um, since you've sort of risen into the, the public eye. And uh, one of the things that I really wanted to understand before, and I, I tend to start here with most of my guesses, I want to understand what it was from your childhood that made you the man you are today, and what those significant moments were, in your view.
0: Wow, that's a, that's a deep question to dive straight into. Uh, let's let's get in there. Um, well, I mean, look, I, I was... Brought up and Born and brought up in, in West Wales, um, I lived uh, on a little small holding. My parents, not farmers actually, uh, often people assume there would be a farming background. My dad, um, a policeman, my mum uh, worked in the bank. Um, and I had quite a, I think a quiet upbringing, you know, in the countryside. Two brothers, two younger brothers. Um, school life for me, I think, was up and down. You know, I was bullied quite a lot at school. A little bit in primary school, more, more so in secondary school. Um, and I think as I grew up, I was naturally—I think it probably innately, as probably as well as my environment that I was in—I was introverted or became an introvert. Um, and know there's a lot of conversation about are you born that way? Is it you moulded that way? I think probably a bit of both for me. Um, and I think you know when I was at school and, and as I was growing up, I think my my parents were a, a, a big influence on my life. I think they instilled a lot of the values that I have. my Mum was a big big believer in that you should, you know go out there and try and add value to people around you in the world and their focus is around what you achieve in terms of that rather than necessarily being trying to like be really successful make loads of money or or whatever and I think that instilled in me that sense of I want to do good or try you know I'm not sitting here thinking you know I have the same I love cars I love all these different things as well I'm not saying I'm you know was trying to be some kind of save the world person but I had that kind of general thing that I'd like to go out there and do something good if I could um and I think when I was about 13 14 I, I had a bit of an interest in science I liked you know uh, I liked the idea of uh, working in a, in a career or going to a career that had um you know a sense of teamwork a, a purpose uh, which might sound a bit odd as an introvert but you know I still wanted to be as part of a movement if you like and that's where medicine kind of appealed to me so um, I started kind of watching early shows of like the equivalent of 24 hours in AE and um, back in the day and really, really kind of thought, oh, it would be amazing to be an A&E doctor, the excitement, the adrenaline, that'd be so awesome. Like, I love that idea of, you know, using science and medicine to save people. And I just started working towards that goal, really. Um, and uh, I'd say that, again, school wasn't that easy for me for various reasons. Um, I know now that I'm dyslexic. I didn't know that then. I didn't know it at school. didn't know it at university. I really struggled with my written work and stuff. And I was very frustrated, actually, at school a lot of the time. Um, I also had a very short attention span. Um, when I was in primary school, I was put into a special needs class for a long time because, um, well, I don't know. I think I, I, I had a short attention span. Maybe they were concerned about me i don't know, really know why um that was a concern my mum actually went into school and said actually alex is quite bright you know i think he would be fine went back into the normal classroom and we kind of continued f- from from there um in secondary school again struggled a bit with the written work and actually when i um when i applied to to med school the first time round, i did all the interviews got my place i actually missed out on my um grades of a uh, grade a and my chemistry by two marks um which cost my place at med school, which is actually one of the most painful moments of my life, and I think really, really a defining moment. Um because at the school I was in, I wasn't in a great yeah, I don't say horrible school. It was a perfectly fine school, but I wouldn't say it was like a really, really high achieving school. It was a state school. Um no one I think had done medicine for a couple of years, a good few years potentially. Everyone's excited about this idea, we've got a student going, um, and there was a kind of everyone waiting for me to kind of open the results and I was like, yeah, I've got two A's and a B or three A's and a B brilliant i'm really glad about that but sadly my two marks means that i can't go to med school and i think that was a really defining moment for me i was coming my first feeling of failure in a way and i think all of that all of that has come together kind of mold my attitude i think to life and to kind of working hard to wanting to achieve to kind of appreciating
1: success when you have it you said you were bullied in school what for
0: uh i grew very tall very quickly i was very skinny um I always had quite a bit of acne and stuff when I was younger um and I think but mainly actually the main reason I think I was bullied was because I was sensitive I am sensitive as a person um and I think things would get to me probably more so than I noticed my friends or other people around me and I think that sadly sensitivity attracts some you know bullies at times you know and we're, at the moment doing a massive campaign with the uh, number 10 and down Award around bullying and tackling that and a lot of the young people I speak to Have experienced the same You know, sensitivity sadly attracts that But it's odd Because now I look back and think You know, at the time I thought that was a real weakness But now I see it as a real strength And I think my sensitivity Has allowed me to be uh, a better doctor I think my, my ability to have empathy On my patients I read people very well I understand when i'm in a team you know, even now whether it's not in, in the hospital or the team that i'm working with all kind of from a management perspective or whether it's people working you know working with people at number 10 i read people very well i understand people and that allows me to get the best out of people but back then it was a real target for bullies i think
1: mm. and obviously as you've you know you've spoken about at length that sensitivity i guess is incredibly conducive with having positive mental health yeah, I, I
0: I think so. I think it's it's about you know when you're talking about um, being an introvert and things and being being sensitive, they're not necessarily uh, mutually exclusive or necessarily come together. But I, I I do think that it's about learning to learning what you have and how to use that to your use your strengths. You know, turn them into your strengths. I saw that as a big weakness, weakness, whereas now I see it as a great strength. And and I think sometimes as you're growing up you're unaware of what's good or bad about you physically or you know in terms of your personality types and sometimes the things that you kind of very harden yourself about when you're younger like being sensitive i'm now quite glad of mm-hmm. even though now of course it still leaves me open i mean yeah. you know how it is being you know um, known in the public eye whatever that, i hate that phrase but you, you, i think it's an understood one um it obviously opens you up because you're open to criticism a lot and especially now with the work i'm doing in the mental health space it's it's tough, and there's a lot of people in the political space, people watching what's happening who
1: will criticize you
0: um, you know and, and that is not easy, but you learn to deal with it and you you build a bit of a thicker skin as well I think
1: Have you learned to deal with it? Because as you say, one point something million followers on Instagram, 1.9 million followers on Instagram, mm. or whatever it is, um, that's a lot of people, probabilistically, there's going to be a bunch of them in there that you know yeah. they just want to ruin your day.
0: You know, it's funny because of all the things I've had, I've had the, the the full works of death threats and all this kind of stuff, particularly, you know, anti-vax and, and things like that We've in recent months and stuff. That doesn't bother me at all, funny enough. I don't mind that. And People can call me ugly. or they can say, look a certain way, or, you know, they can call me what they want um, in that sense. And it doesn't bother me too much, to be honest. I've really been able to kind of, even though that was the kind of stuff that bothered me when I was younger, I'm very resilient to that now. What I think I'm more sensitive to now is when people kind of criticise the things that I'm working on that really matter to me, particularly the stuff around the mental health space. You know, when I've been actually working in the space for, for a good few years, before I even moved before before 2018, when I was on Love Island, I, even before all that, I was really... You know actively working with the, the charities i was also um you know passionate advocate in my space in a and e we see a huge amount of mental health i mean one of the big misconceptions about a and e is we just see you know injuries cuts mm. and bruises and heart attacks and things at least 30 percent of our workload relates to mental health and i think it's probably higher than that in reality um and and i've really worked in that space but obviously you know since i was appointed youth mental health ambassador since sadly my brother passed away last year which kind of led to me focusing even more and i guess the attention on it which led to the appointment it's tough sometimes when people go well oh you you know you got 80 million for mental health support teams at school why didn't you get 200 you know you've let us down you didn't get 200 million it's very hard you know and it, it's when you especially when i go i'm very and actually a very optimistic and positive person you know when i came to the role i was in the role and i was in it for about two or three weeks and i got 80 million quid that's a lot of money you know at a time in a pandemic where the government's pretty strapped we spent a load of money i'm not just saying it's just me we worked as there's other people within the with the group and the number 10 and outside that worked on this but i would i think it's fair to say i was a big steer on that happening and then someone goes oh you didn't get enough you've let us down what you've done is terrible you know you shouldn't be there why are you in this role not easy um but i always go back to and i think at the time when i came out there's a huge and i should say this i've 95 percent amount of of support has been unbelievable it's always the five percent or one percent or whatever that Mm they get to you a little bit but you know now i've gone back to the idea of well actually what are my values what matters to me and i go well actually i believe that i am making you know at least if even if it's a millimeter of difference i'm doing something i'm doing something positive and that keeps me going and that's what stops me becoming down, I guess, from from the kind of hate, if you like. Are you
1: you a confident person?
0: No, I don't think so. I am confident. um, ah, That's a good question. No, I'm not. I don't think so. Not inherently confident. I think I would always... If you put me in a a party, if we were at a swanky party in New York that you might attend (laughs) before the pandemic, um, I'd probably be the guy in the corner, quietly chatting to one or two people, you know, and just... I wouldn't... I would certainly avoid center of attention classic kind of introvert in that sense but i even though i'm not confident i do think i'm very resilient and i think i'm very determined and i think that helps me a lot where confidence lacks sometimes my determination i think pushes through
1: i mean it it, it kind of begs the question and I'm, i'm sure you know you're probably sick of people inquiring about this apparent contradiction which is not a confident person in your own definition of confidence um And yet when that Love Island researcher comes knocking on your Instagram, when you have 200 followers and says, do you want to be be on one of the biggest shows in the world? Mm. Topless. Yeah. (laughs) 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 like One of the biggest shows in the country, Topless. You were like, sure.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, this, the reason that happened was, Look, when I was at university uh, and and I loved my time at university as uh, mostly I will come and talk about a little bit about a time that wasn't so good maybe in a little bit but on the whole pretty pretty good time um but in my second year at uni one of my very very good friends Freya Barlow who was and it's it's annoying because sometimes you hear and I I don't mean it's any disrespectful you hear people talking about someone that's passed and everyone goes they're amazing they do this and they do this and that but honestly, like Freya was the most amazing person. She started like two charities even by her second year in med school. She spent her summers vaccinating kids and, you know, and, and, and abroad and going to Africa and just doing like a really amazing work. And very sadly, you know, well, I actually remember one week, it was towards the winter time. I'm trying to remember towards the winter time. I said, Freya, you've got some bruises on your arm. I mean, are you all right? She said, Oh, it's a bit, yeah, a bit odd. I've got a few bruises. I'm actually going to see the doctor, I think it was the next day or the day after anyway a couple of days later with a text in the group saying we need to go for dinner tonight to talk to you guys I thought this is hard so we went to went to dinner and she sat us down and, and said look you know these bruises that i've had i went to the doctor had blood tests taken next day rushed into hospital i've got leukemia you know and she had acute myeloid leukemia which is a very very serious serious form of leukemia and to put into context it differs between people but it can be a matter of short weeks from being diagnosed to passing away if you don't have treatment really quickly so it's one of the most aggressive and uh, nasty cancers that you can have and so it's a huge shock to all of us and she quite literally went to dinner and the next morning straight into isolation in the hospital to have nuclear chemotherapy basically like really really strong chemotherapy she was in there for a huge length of time many many months um, and you know it it was really hard to watch her you know here here for falling out you know losing weight you know swelling in her arms and feet and things like that from from the chemo and she was always so positive throughout the whole thing her positivity was unbelievable and how relentless she was um and even to the point where she's actually you know the university said look take time out clearly you know we want you to recover and have time out she said no i want to do my tests i want to do my exams she sat her exams in isolation in an isolation cubicle in the hospital which is just unbelievable shows her resilience and um, anyway after a long bit of time I think it was six months or more and um, she actually had a bone marrow uh, transplant uh, from I think it was someone in Germany um, that gave her the bone marrow and she came out of the hospital and we were like yes you know she's getting through this um, and she even ran a marathon something silly like a month or so or a couple of months after afterwards to raise money for leukemia research you know straight we're like just chill out a bit And she's like no I'm straight back to charity work fine so then running into the next winter um we had a phone call again and she said it's back i don't know what you mean like, the cancer's back and she was told she had a matter of weeks to live because she'd had the bone marrow transplant it was now to the point where there was basically nothing could do so we threw a big ball uh, and a party to kind of kind of celebrate her life to that point um and we all kind of said like goodbye so we went i went to her house actually to say uh, goodbye to her um and one of the things she said to me before she, well, she passed away. well, she like a week or so later it wasn't very long uh she said alex you're an introvert you're sometimes you're i think you've got a lot of talent in terms of what you do and i'm very proud of the things you do and i think you you're you know you've got a lot of potential in your life but you sometimes shy away and i want you to go out there and say yes to things put yourself in, com- in out of your comfort zone think it's fair to say often in life i just keep myself in that comfort zone. put yourself out of that comfort zone you know say yes to things live your life you know, I'm in a position now where I have to stop my life here. I want you to live yours. And that, I think, is a very long-winded explanation. But that is why I went on that show. Because I actually was very resistant to it the whole time. And even to now, the, the execs will say I'm the one person that didn't want to go on the show. You know, but I was like, I almost felt like I don't know what I believe and what you don't believe. But I was like, I was like what would Freya say? She said, get on that show and do it. And that's why I did it.
1: I can't imagine what it's like having to go and say goodbye to a friend like that
0: and and you know it's so difficult and and at that at that age you know only 22 or 23 or something whatever i was, it was it's very odd it's very odd to have a conversation with someone and like we've, we've experienced everyone's experienced grief uh, at some point and but this was the only and still is the only time i've been sat with someone knowing it was the last conversation it's a very odd situation because what do you say to someone who is dying in the next couple of weeks and they're so young and you had all this hope about them getting better um but and i remember it's almost like I go back to that moment so intensely because in that moment i was like this is the last chance i'm going to speak to this person i need to capture every second of this so it's almost like hardwired into my brain um but i really appreciated what she said and i to this day even now you know I was on Sky News this morning and stuff which is again miles out of my comfort zone never you know I'm becoming more used to these things now but miles out of my comfort zone none of that stuff would happen if it wasn't for what she said to me I don't think um I'd have just continued staying within that comfort zone not pushing myself um
1: and protecting myself in a way I guess what did you say to her on that day
0: I told her that I loved her um and that I was so glad that I knew her um and how grateful I was, really, that uh, that she was my friend. Um, and, you know, what I didn't tell her, which I said to other people, was how cruel the world can be sometimes. You know, you've got someone who is going to be a doctor, and we want an amazing doctor as well. You know, not just a doctor, but an amazing one. Um, and such a kind, genuine person. Like, how cruel can it be to happen to that person? But obviously, in that moment, you don't want to say that. You know, she... She, you just want to instill that feeling of love and appreciation for them. Um, but it was hard. What can you say? A lot of it's nonverbal. You have a hug and you just share that moment, don't you? But when you walk out of that room, it's like, wow, like I'm not seeing her again. Very odd. Very difficult. Very very difficult. But, you know, I'm very grateful for, and a pos- <laughs> I've taken it straight into a, a darker place there, but in a real positive, you know, I feel that the people around us do have can have such an impact on our lives and like so much light has come from her life because of that I continue to talk about as much as possible we, uh, you know and and we all celebrate her and, and her life and I hope that I have taken a bit of her with me to do some of the things I'm doing now and I hope that she'd be
1: proud of some of it and you were you were working in uh, sort of emergency medicine before the Love Island experience began so it begs the question how did you get into that if you weren't able to go to medical school
0: well so so basically I'd applied the time if we go back to when I missed my grades um and this is where I think I learned about failure, which I think is very important. I'm talking about success, but failure is incredibly important. Um I failed by two marks, obviously absolutely gutted, didn't have my grades. What made it worse is me and my friend were going to Liverpool together. He was going to do, go to dental school, I was med school, best buddies all the way through, like can't wait. And obviously, like, oh mate, sorry, Fresh you enjoy yourself. Yeah, gutted. Um so I had to apply again. I to, well, I had to actually I remember sat down with my mum and um she was very upset as you as you can imagine. And I said, Look, mum, it's fine. And I apply again, I get the grades, I do the interviews, do the tests you've got to do with the application, it's fine, I'll get in. Um, and I believe that I would. I was like, I'm not going to give up. I corrected a few sentences on my course that I needed to correct to get the marks back up. I reapplied again, did the interviews, I got my place. And Does it I went, sound
1: like a guy that lacks confidence?
0: uh i don't know i think i think re- i think res- that resil resilience and confidence are probably separate things i think i that was the one of the first times i really faced properly in my life where i'd really failed and i had to kind of ask myself a question do i give up and i was like i am not giving up i'm going and i think it was like and but i think that did give me confidence i think if we're talking about that it's like that resilience of going i was like wow when i got the place again and i went to med school i did feel more confident about that I might not be confident to walk topless (laughs) in front of people like when my knees were shaking and walking out on Love Island, but I I was more confident myself that I was resilient. And when I went to med school, the great thing was, and I think this is why failure is so important, A, I knew how painful it is to nearly miss out on something that means a lot to you. Second, I really appreciate it when I've actually succeeded. So when I was at med school, i just appreciated it so much i loved every moment of it you know i i worked hard you know and i even though i nearly missed out on going i came out with a distinction the top kind of two or three in the year you know a uh, few people each year get distinction so I, I ended up in doing well but i don't think that's because i'm particularly better than an, anyone at, at exams or whatever i just had tasted the failure so much that i wanted that success and i think that has been a really good life lesson you know i still fail today we all fail right all the time but I know that I can pick myself up and I will always get there.
1: Do you want to come in and watch this podcast live from behind the scenes? If you do, all you have to do is hit the subscribe button. And now that the world is opened up, you'll be behind the scenes as many of our subscribers have been. I can't wait to meet you. That's part of what inspires you to try things outside of your, this sort of circumference of your comfort zone is knowing that even if, you know, the worst possible outcome occurs, you, you've been here before, you survived this yeah. storm. And, and it worked out in the end. And I think even for me now in my life, when, you know, cause we're all, our comfort zones are all subjective to uh, yeah. our, our experiences in life. So I have a comfort zone too, you yeah. know what I mean? People like, people think I've achieved a lot in like my business career, whatever. I still have a comfort zone. There's still this thing in my head that says, Steve, this is what you're capable of, right? Yeah. And so even when I step outside of mine, the thing that I'm always relying on in the hardest moments of my life is that hindsight of, you know, we've we've been here before, we've got through this, yeah, and it, and it, and you've got to have faith, even if it doesn't feel like it, even if your emotions are telling you otherwise. You've got to have faith and trust yourself. Well, you
0: learn every time you extend that boundary of the comfort zone. You've got a step further. I mean, mm. what what are the what are you doing at the moment? Outside of your kind Me, of comfort oh, zone, God. what are you what are you doing that's kind of pushing? You? Because we're all, we all I think it's important to share because sure. like, people will look at you and think, "Oh, these guys are so successful at yeah.
1: everything." But we all are pushing that boundary, right? Yeah. So a couple of things. The first thing is obviously Dragon's Den, which I've you know I've done podcasting before, but I control this. Yeah. And there's you know. There's not four point something million people watching. I mean, we've got close to your time, but um, I control this, so and I know how this works. This yeah. is my domain. Dragons Den. When you start with five panelists, the one on your left's been there twenty years. The one on your right's <laughs> yeah. been there fifteen. And there's massive cameras swinging. There's this lift door poof, swings open, and all of this. And then you're, you know, all of the all of the dynamics to consider. Trying to learn. Trying to uh, trying to learn how mm. to. um play my role in this show while also trying to analyze the business and decide whether I want to give my money (laughs) to this business within a short period of time, it's a lot. Um, That's how it comes in, DJing, as you can see over there. Um, I'm learning (laughs) to DJ and I'm going to do a show this year. So. so Outside my comfort zone. We're doing. I'll I'll come through. <laughs> I love that. I'll stand in the corner, <laughs> right, the
0: back corner, out of the way, so they don't notice me. But I'll appreciate you.
1: Yeah. Um. This the show we're doing in. I think it's uh, twelve twelve days away. There's you know. A thousand people coming to the, the Albert Hall. It's Amazing. musical. It's I've written the whole thing. Chosen the music. Twenty person choir, etc., etc. Oh, Big show. And then my I'll just I don't want to rattle on, but my last thing would be my business. So I started a company when I was tw- twenty. Grew it worth three hundred million. You know, very interesting journey. Now I'm going like ten times bigger. And to play at a ten times bigger level, where you're trying to raise two hundred million from the start yeah. and grow a multi billion dollar company it requires a completely different set of skills. And again, you feel in some areas like an imposter, yeah. but I don't give a fuck because I've always felt this yeah. way. I've always felt like this, like I've always felt like this sounds crazy to say. That's how I felt. Everything I've said my whole life sounded kind of crazy to me yeah, yeah. until it wasn't. Yeah. So when I say crazy things these days, again, it's that hindsight of me going, Well, everything else I said said sounded crazy, and it worked out.
0: out, So it's it's just you just learn, don't you, from your experiences that you, even though it's it's a different uncomfortable zone that you're in mm. you got through your last uncomfortable zone and you came out stronger yeah. from it. and even even if and that's important like even if you failed at that time you still survived it. you're still here you're still breathing you still get you got up and you're going again and that's important that's the important point from it and it's, it's interesting you're hearing that because i'm starting my business uh, prescribed which is mm. a very much smaller business the bath bombs that we're doing self-care um which is very exciting but that's that's a that's a very uncomfortable zone for me i mean you know i have surrounded myself with a team that have experience in different areas and i recognize that it is an area that is new to me but even with the right people around you it's it's quite scary Mm. so um you know but it's exciting as well i i've i think that's a big thing i've learned i've learned to enjoy that feeling of being uncomfortable my mum has a great saying actually and she she said this for many many years and i love it get comfortable being uncomfortable Mm. i think that's a really great point i mean you never are quite i mean it doesn't it's an imperfect statement but it it does i i kind of get that it's like in in the hospital for example right it's it's like in the hospital okay you start as a first year medical student right and you've never taken blood in your life i don't know you know to get the needle into the vein taking a blood test right honestly my hands shaking when i had to, to, to do the first blood test in real person i thought no i'm out i can't do this i'm not made for it i'm an imposter what am i doing here get me out of here and then, you know, you do it ten times, like, oh, that's that's <laughs> fine. And then you build up. And then the first time, you know, when you're say a fifth year med student and you're doing your first CPR on a cardiac arrest patient, helping out in recess and then in the A and E department, like, Oh my god, this is too much, what am I doing here? You do it a few times, it's fine. And you just you just it just you every margin you gain, you get better at something. And but it always happens. I mean, even, even consultants say have been doing it, been studying for study and working for 15 20 years and they say the first day of the consultant they feel like their first day at med school again yeah. i think there's know?
1: something really interesting there so i want to ask you a question on that that taking the blood from the veins as a junior doctor how would you feel in terms of fulfillment and i'm this is i'm totally leading yeah. you to a place that i want to do another, ask another <laughs> question but how would you feel in terms of fulfillment if you're a junior doctor they said okay today alex we're going to take blood from a vein and then you had to do that exact same thing for 20 years so first day you're shitting it oh my god no 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 shaking hands Da-da. take the blood second day a little bit more comfortable third day a little bit more comfortable with it how would you feel in 20 years time yeah doing the same thing every day yeah
0: i, th- I think you you need to f- i think self-development is very important and feeling that you're adding layers to your skill set or whatever we're talking about medicine here but it can be anything in life i think that variation and variety is very important and feeling that you're pushing basically feeling you're you're pushing yourself yeah and i think that's the idea of because at the end of the day um the struggle of life and the challenges in life getting over them is what gives you that sense of reward if you don't have a struggle if there isn't any struggle if life was completely easy if you woke up with 50 million quid in the bank and there are no challenges at all you'd be very bored actually i think you know and i enjoy there's always a balance because you have a balance it's all about balance you don't want too much struggle yeah. because that's or too much hardship and if i if a and e was making me cry every day, yeah. then clearly i wouldn't want to be there but yeah i think that it's good to have that increasing mounting challenge you know
1: and that's exactly what i was alluding to which is that that worthwhile struggle is achieved by stepping out being uncomfortable as yeah. your mother said So we know that worthwhile struggle is so critically important to being fulfilled in life, as you've said. And that worthwhile struggle, like showing up that first day or then advancing, is achieved by being uncomfortable. So if we reason from there, we can say being uncomfortable is the reason why you achieve worthwhile struggle, which is the reason why you achieve fulfillment. And this is part of what I I was alluding to, which is people that avoid the uncomfortable piece, which is at the very start of that chain, then don't get the worthwhile fulfillment, which comes from the the challenge, but also they stay in situations which are no longer serving them. Relationships, jobs. And that again, because they're like, oh my God, I got uncertainty of jumping off this cliff and going into uncertainty is just, and then they, and then they have midlife crises and mental health challenges and, so that's why I'm just so passionate. it's, it's about- the whole idea
0: around fearing less I think people are often it's i and i I love um psychology I read a lot of i've I've read power of now, you know the secret, all the kind of classic ones but I've you know I'm really into that kind of mindset theory and it, 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 a lot of people are very afraid that the next situation they might find themselves in will be more painful or difficult than their current situation, but in reality often you find that the change you're gonna experience isn't as bad as you think it is. It's, mm. it's the idea of like, you know, the, the the analogy of having a Ferrari on your drive, right? And you get your Ferrari and the first day you're so excited about it and you think, oh my God, I'm gonna be like so happy about this car and this is gonna be, exc-. every day we're so excited about it, it's gonna be incredible, I've got this massive house. but every day that kind of that you return to the baseline level of happiness what you're experiencing is pleasure isn't it not Mm -hmm. necessarily fulfillment it's a pleasure and that will come down obviously the ferrari after a certain amount of time you might love it and i love my cars but i'm not gonna be jumping up and down every morning every time i see the car Mm -hmm. it's eventually gonna come back to the baseline and equally you know you people worry on the opposite end Say you're really really worried about i don't know um changing your job and you're really worried that you might you know you might start this new job and you gonna be really bad at it and it's gonna be so difficult every day and oh, i'm just not gonna be prepared or whatever and you start the job and the first few days can be really scary you might feel really uncomfortable and it's really challenging but you will come back to that baseline of it being okay and if you look at relationships people worry oh i'm in this relationship what if i break up in this relationship and the next one isn't as good or i'm not as happy or regret it i think i've really or really messed (laughs) this up what have i done But actually, your fear, when they actually do it, they go, actually, it was fine. I wasn't meant to stay in that relationship. You know, I was actually staying there from a place of fear and fearing too much rather than going, well, actually, if you stand to reason, you know, my current situation is far from perfect. I don't want to be in it. Why should the next situation be any worse?
1: I, I completely agree with everything you're saying. In fact, I sent one of my best friends a quote last night that I'd written. Um, because of the situation he was in and I think it kind of exemplifies what we're saying I said if you want to avoid making the same mistakes twice make more decisions based on your past memories and less decisions based on your current emotions and what I was trying to say there is that in the moment when you're in that relationship or you're in that toxic job situation you'll you'll be um, uh, like suffocated and um, imprisoned by your own fear Um, of uncertainty or failure, or I'll never meet someone as good as this Mm. or whatever it is, but you've always got through it. You've been in love. Like with me, Mm. I was convinced from the age of 12 that I was going to marry Jasmine. And then (laughs) at 14, I was convinced it was Helen. And then at 16, I was like, you know, I've always thought that this person was the one. (laughs) In the moment, I've always thought this is it and look at me moving on to number seven and thinking this is it (laughs) you you kind of hold on to your current situation
0: because ultimately we always go well actually my current situation i'm in i'm not in pain i've got food and water i feel okay it's not that terrible what if the next situation whatever that might be work or otherwise life or others what if that is worse than my current one we always fear the fear the unknown but it's the it's like this and i hope i'm quoting the right (laughs) the right genius i think it was einstein that said that um you know the the is that the definition of insanity is repeating the same action, or it's roughly along the lines yeah. of repeating the same action, and expecting a different outcome? You know, if you, you know, one plus one is always going to be two. So, you know, if you're not, if you're having that same outcome and frustrated with it, you have to change something in your equation to bring something different.
1: Amen. We were talking about f- um, failure there, and, and you and you know that led us on to talk about university, and you you um, subtly said that there was a part of university mm. which you didn't enjoy.
0: Yeah, I, I think. Um, I don't think anyone in life lives an entire life of having just being happy all the time, everything's great and having periods of being flat or sad or losing yourself. And I think my time for that up to date, uh, I think was probably at university. Uh, I was at my fourth year, everything going great, studies going great, I was on for doing really well. Um, and i I actually was based so i went to university in peninsula which is extra in plymouth but we do placements all the way around that kind of peninsula so yeah 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 (laughs) Uh, and and i I loved my time there but i got sent down to truro to to hospital there and i loved the hospital people everyone was fantastic but i was kind of away from friends i was in a place that i just i just felt quite isolated and i actually suspect i'm probably just putting it on that as a place of reason but for whatever reason i just become quite flat and i lost interest in my Exercise. Stopped exercising. My studies, even not like I wasn't really working as much as I should have been. Sleep went out the window. I was staying up late, getting up, you know, getting up late, eating bad. I just lost myself in time. I became quite unhappy, and I kept really quiet about it. I didn't tell anyone because this is terrible. You know, I was going to be a doctor. I need to be like really, really strong. Like, how can you be a caring professional if you can't take care of yourself? So I left it a long time, probably like six, seven months of feeling pretty damn miserable. Um, to the point where eventually I was like I need to do something but I was like I can't speak to the med school because they might think this guy we've we got to have to hold him back or something He can't be a doctor I mean, that's not true and I actually look back and think that was you know that, sadly that's a big part of the stigma and mental health but that, that isn't true but at the time I felt that way so I called who, who a, lot of, a lot of people relate to this what, what do you do in a situation of trouble Call my mum uh, and I said you know it was a big outpouring of emotion I was like this is you know this is what's happening I feel dreadful and she said well look there's a few things we're going to do we're going to talk every single day and start speaking about the thoughts and the things you're having. Because I've beaten myself up a lot and about insensitive and weak and all this stuff. So let's talk about this stuff. And secondly, let's start getting you doing the things that you know that are good for you. You know, she's like, you've stopped doing all the anchors in your life that keep you feeling good. It's pretty wise for her. You. She's not a doctor. You know, she works in the bank, but very wise woman, clearly. Um, I'd like to think so. And she said, look, start doing those things again. So I thought you're right. You know, she'd make sense. So I'll go for a walk every day so I get natural light and the benefits of being outside in nature. Let's start exercising again. So I create an exercise routine. I was like, I'm eating crap, I'm eating rubbish food. Let's start cooking again. I make my own food uh, rather than just getting ready meals. Um and and I was like, let's I'm not really connecting with people. So let's plan stuff. So I start making plans with my friends. Uh, and I also had an idea where I was like well actually you know to help me feel less isolated let's call a different friend every day some people I haven't spoken to for years and just chat to them and all these little things all these micro changes added up within literally weeks to like transforming how I felt I got my Zasta Lviv back I had my energy back I was like I'm back to that kind of type a you know happy forceful person to kind of go out and really make the most of each day and 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 I think I've learned so much from that. and I've learned from that throughout um, throughout my time post university, but also I've learned about that in terms of what I think people kind of don't understand about health. And you know, when I was at when I was working at Lewisham Hospital, I'm still work there now in A and E. So many people that I see, so many patients come in, and I realise that they've not been given the tools through education and school about understanding how to actually look after themselves you know we taught so much at school about maths and english and history and whatever but no one tells you about why sleep is actually so important to your productivity your self-worth your happiness that sleep is not actually a, a state of just being sedated sedated you're actually in a creative space the idea that You know nutrition can actually help you feel better not just like just for having a diet or whatever that people kind of see it as you know the role of exercise all these different things i'm like but but these things actually do matter because these things are not only keep your keep you physically healthy keep you mentally healthy as well and that's where you know the book live well came from i I wrote that book because i felt those are the things that no one taught me in school and even at med school you know we focus on anatomy physiology uh, and pathology looking at diseases and treatments but we didn't do enough in my opinion about these fundamental things around sexual health physical health uh, in terms of you know sleep exercise passion and purpose you know a big reason we go to school surely is to find what our purpose and what we want to do in life and no one kind of gives you any tools I don't think to figure out what that is you know I was lucky to find my kind of sense of purpose I was kind of stumbled upon it you know based on some of my interests and I was kind of lucky um And I really felt that 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 those kind of bits, as you know, that's why I wrote that book. I felt that that is the stuff that I wish people had told me when I was younger,
1: you know. So I've got a couple of points here. <clears throat> when you went through that phase in university, would you class classify yourself as being depressed at that point? I would look back and I would say I was depressed. I had low energy.
0: Um, my mood was poor. My sleep was disturbed. Uh, I lack of interest in my hobbies and stuff. There's plenty of kind of tick boxes for for being in that category. I said I had mild depression at the time, mild
1: to moderate depression. And you said there that, and this is because, I mean, it speaks volumes to me, what you said after, which was that people, we, what I heard was that people don't understand the full range of the causes of depression. Yeah. And I've sat here twice now with Johanna Hari. Uh, do you know Johanna Hari? He wrote yeah. a book called yeah, yeah, about yeah. Lost Connections. Yeah. And um, I, w- I went through the years, and I've said this before, but I went through the years not not believing this idea that we were just being born broken mm. and understanding that the only thing that's really changed in humans over the last, let's say, 20 years is the world we live in yeah. um, and the way we live, mm. right? The way that society has conditioned us to live yeah. more lonely, as you've written about in this book. And I read about, um, uh, you know, less meaningful connections, mm. less purpose in our lives, less exercise we're getting more stagnant over the last 50 years than ever before yeah um and so mike one of the questions i was i was planning on asking you today but you kind of answered it there but i'm gonna ask it again anyway is what are the biggest misconceptions about maintaining good mental health and or what's causing bad mental health that you have um in your opinion well i think if you look at
0: what humans are designed to do. We're designed to uh be out well, we, we should be outside mostly, you know, we, we will create shelters and things, but most of our day should be in natural light. Uh we should be uh you know, going out and searching and foraging and finding our food food as part of a team. So we're usually in a family or a group, a clan tribe. to kind of to tribe to <laughs> so go out there and get your to get your food. We're supposed to feel that sense of purpose within 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 our within our tribe. So, someone is generally a leader. The people that help it's people with different skills. But you feel a sense of belonging uh, uh, to that tribe. We should be eating food that comes from the earth. That's not processed food that we w- certainly wouldn't do as part of uh, part of nature. We get plenty of exercise as part of our day. You know, foraging, hunting, doing whatever. Building. You look at modern life and and flip that round and go. A lot of us spend our times in boxes inside without any natural light. Glued to phones, not connected with people, often feeling that we don't have our sense of purpose and not really understanding, you know, why we feel that that way. You know, a lot of the things in modern life are pulling us away from good quality sleep, giving us bad sleep. They're pulling us towards fast foods and processed foods away from natural sources of you know, good quality food that fuels our body. And if you look at it, all that and you think about it in that way, it makes a lot of sense why people feel quite lost. They don't know why they feel a certain way. And I think we just need to kind of step back and go, let's educate. And this is why, you know, what the work I'm doing, the youth mental health role, I'm focused on education so much. I, you know, and we've made five uh, well-being videos for this summer as part of the summer school program, which are going to go out to all the schools in the UK. And we're looking at we're looking at sleep we're looking at exercise, we're looking at nutrition, we're looking at managing social media and what to do when you're not feeling good in yourself. And within those videos and within the toolkits we're giving, I'm hoping there's a lot of stuff in there that people go, wow, like I I didn't realize that about sleep and why that's important or, you know, why I need to get natural light, why I need to get outside. So I think so much of that stuff comes together. I'm not saying that the cause of mental illness is always related to lifestyle. That is obviously not true. There's a huge amount to, out there that's, you know, to do with genetics and, and, and diseases. You can't blame lifestyle for all disease, but I do think it's a big part of it. And if you look at what happens when you go to your doctor and say, I'm depressed, I need help. The first thing we look at is lifestyle. Uh, and we combine that with other treatments if needed, regardless of that disease. And actually, even when you're looking at severe forms of mental illness, the lifestyle factor will always remain really, really important because without that, I don't think the treatments can, can, can do it alone. Mm -hmm. It has to be a combination thing. But this is what, you know, know there's so many people out there, not necessarily depressed, but they're just low mood of just anhedonia. They just don't feel themselves. They're just a bit lost. And I think a lot of it comes back to the things I talk about in that book.
1: I couldn't agree more. And when I, because I agree so much, I've I've tried (laughs) to figure out how one would, from their, you know, from their apartment here in Shoreditch, do something to help. And because it's such a fundamental issue about the way we've chosen to live our lives, you know, illuminated glass screens to date to order food to move around as you said isolated four white walls these like you can't tear that down surely so i like we i I reflect and go we would literally have to rethink the way we live our entire lives the foundations in which our lives are built in order to solve this problem that's genuinely what i think to to truly solve this problem we'd have to redesign our society i think so i think we
0: and, we, and even i think as a whole i think that's a big part of the solution right. but as an individual if you're sitting within this space you know in you're living in the world we're in now right you can't get rid of social media it's part of our work it's literally part of the, the mouthpiece of a lot of the stuff that we do for example you can't get rid of that so what is the answer it's about adapting uh and making sure that you are aware in your life of these principles and Thinking about how you can actually adapt your life to make sure you encapsulate you know you're incorporating that for example stuff like i know if i don't go for a walk each day and get a natural light and just feel that i'm about around in nature i get anxious I, I feel a sense of just like being not at ease so i make sure every morning i get up in the morning first thing i do every day is go for a walk out for a walk. In nature i move it's great for productivity i get great ideas sometimes when i'm thinking i walking some bad ones as well but generally just <laughs> being out and about is yeah. brilliant for that you know i make sure that at the end of each day i again get outside and i move but also i do my exercise at the end of the day it signifies the end of my like working day you know i plan things meaningful connections with my friends and family now more than ever like it's so easy just to chat on the phone or facetime i'm like now that we can more safely with the pandemic you know make time for the people around you see them in person do things with them in in meaningful ways talking about sleep you know the whole like sleep when you're dead idea and a lot of i think you know you talk you'd like to talk to obviously a lot of very successful uh, business people and sometimes the slightly negative side of the work uh, that life is not finding that balance of sleep And and i know the things i'm juggling as well that can be difficult but i I really, really value and understand that if I don't have my eight hours sleep and good quality sleep, I'm not going to be as productive. I won't actually be as creative, and I probably won't be as success- successful at the things I'm doing. So it's just making those changes, you know, and just just being aware. Once you're aware of a problem, you talked in an episode before, but we talked about um, exercising between uh, for the summer. Summer shape, right? Being a summer body, right? I would call it. Not calling it out here, like cube full of yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm not saying, but but you, the part of it for me, same for me as well. Uh, I went, well, why is that? Why are we doing it? As soon as you're aware of the why and why we're doing something, we then. Through that awareness, modify, and we realize all of a sudden we modify our, our behavior. It's kind of idea if I say to you, right, focus on your breathing. It's like, or like, think about your breath. All of a sudden you start controlling your breathing. Mm. You're aware of it. You're making a conscious um, conscious decision around that that subject. So I think just having that knowledge, have that understanding, and be aware of what it's doing to your life. Some of it might you might incorporate. Some of you think, actually, I'm fine in that sense. But think about it you're so, that's
1: such a good point and you know like up until so the example you gave just for reference sake is um i always the reason why i was always unsuccessful in the gym is because i was my goal was to get to look good for summer so when i looked good all summer ended my why was gone and i and i was and it was a cycle that just repeated every single year but i think most of us feel that i mean yeah. most of us have been there and done that haven't we but your point there was the thing that cured it was the self-awareness yeah. of my own cycle right. and Without the self-awareness and the education, which I think you've 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 done a tremendous job in this book of uh, put like of um, educating people on, um, we as it relates to the point we're making about the society we live in and how it's broken, you will literally be a puppet to the society, and the society will be your puppet master. It will tell you the notifications on your phone will tell you when you can sleep, yeah. and it will tell you um, when uh, how to communicate and form meaningful connections use tinder it will it will it will orchestrate your life for you and i think what you're saying there is which i completely agree with is self-awareness allows you to take back control and be intentional about these critically important areas for your, of your health and then and if yeah. you want
0: any more kind of evidence of how much it controls it think about you know what when i if i said to someone now right don't have your phone in the bedroom tonight i mean instant for most people i would, I don't speak for everyone, but a lot of people been for me, i'm not doing that anxiety <laughs> around the thought of not having your phone in the bedroom it's like Why is that such a big thing? It's not a problem to have the phone outside the room. Why do you really need it? But it shows our attachment to tech and to the modern life. You know, we don't need that phone. Actually, when I was on Love Island, the the best thing about going on Love Island was that I didn't have a phone for nearly nine weeks. That was the best thing about it. (laughs) I Mm. literally say that it was great being the sunshine, (laughs) but that actually was amazing. It was like a real like wow. And now I've come back, we're so attached to it again. Um, And it's something I'm working on. I'm conscious. I need to start putting my phone out of my bedroom. I've done it a few times, but it just creeps back in. But I'm
1: aware of it now. And I think that's a big starting point for fixing a problem, just knowing it's there.
0: Mm.
1: Speaking of Love Island, when you came out of um, Love Island, I I heard that you went and did some therapy. Yeah. Tell me about your thinking there and and what inspired that. When you look at... um,
0: risks for um deterioration in mental health or mental illness one of the biggest things we talk about is change and big life change changes and people sometimes think that means bad things it means good and bad like for example you could have been given your dream job in uh london and you're from leeds now that's the goal and what's happening is your dream you've had that dream job but it means a big up life upheaval getting a new flat being away from family friends so even good things can get bring problems right so when i came out of the show i was like wow i've been through i was quite aware i've been through quite a big thing i've gone from you know 200 followers on instagram instagram to 1 million in in nine weeks you know i am not someone from social media i don't understand it at all it was all completely new the life of change and now being stopped you know by everyone in the street which is something so different for me and i was like i need to process this so that's why i went to therapy i think it was one of the best things i've done i kind of had to kind of like unpick what i was going through and it was almost like a It's such a big shock to the system and it really, really helped me. And I'd say to anyone, you know, everyone should have a therapist. I actually think, you know, everyone needs a therapist in life. And it's one of the things that I think the Americans have really got right. I think that we could learn from is that it's so much more open, to talk about things and what you're going through. And people are very happy to say, I'm getting therapy, you know, and it wasn't because I was particularly going through a difficult time. I just was aware. I've had quite a big change.
1: Very um, self-aware of you to even... To even want to do that because you, you as you say you weren't struggling mm. tremendously in that moment but you were it was almost preemptive i guess you're, yeah you're, yeah
0: i just kind of was like this is just you know kind of it's, sorry, to use the word but crazy it's like this is a crazy thing to go through i need to kind of kind of process this and it really it really helped me because i went back to unpicking about like who am i what do i want in life what do i want to achieve in my life and it allowed me to kind of consider those things as well as dealing with like okay what's it like you know to for people to recognize you know, all this kind of stuff and, and and it really helped me and going back to that kind of purpose point i kind of had this kind of big life shift of like what is my purpose now because i've trained or i wanted to be a doctor since the age of about 13 i've tried and all that training and all past all those exams i've actually pretty happy at 27 years old being a doctor you know i've got a good life and what i'm doing i enjoy it now i've got this whole new thing what is my purpose and it really helped me kind of figure that out and one of the biggest things, and the most important things, I did was going back to to work. You know, I went back to A and E after a couple of months, um, to kind of to kind of just get back into that kind of what the sense of me was. And from doing that, actually, it gave me the purpose for everything else and all the things that I do and all the things, the books, the podcast, the the you know, you know the other bits and pieces that I'm doing in my life. It all stems off that that purpose. And I think I was very lucky to have that therapy. And I'm glad that I had it to help me figure out what I was going to do.
1: Christ, because and in that moment coming out of Love Island, you have more options mm. than ever. But you can make it, but more
0: options also gives you, uh, it brings the, op- the the possibilities of making a lot of mistakes. For example, you know, and I, and I, again, I don't, I'm not saying it's any kind of slight at all, we're all different, everyone's different. But for me, I was not going to come out and do um, club appearances or, uh, you know, do those kind of things because it's a, I'm an introvert, I would have hated it, as you probably realised by now. But secondly, it would have drawn away from what I actually what my purpose was and what I really wanted to achieve. So, you know, and, 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 and I'm I've very wise advice I received um coming out of the show. Oh, Stop against scrum things, sorry guys. <laughs> The so wise advice I received when I came out of the show was, you know, say no to most things. You know, if you're saying yes to more things, you're saying no, you're probably doing something wrong. Um, and I had to kind of channel that. And it was a risk in it in some sense. I could have made a ton of money going to club peers. The most I was offered was like 10 grand to go to a club, right, just for half an hour, 40 minutes or something. And I said no to every single one of them, and say I've never ever done one, but by doing that and channeling my energy into things that I care about and putting my time into the projects that kind of matter and give me that longevity and the direction I want to be in, that was very important. And uh, yeah, as I say, I think a big part of figuring that all out was therapy that really helped me.
1: I think It's really interesting as well is when you take you, you, when you drift away from yourself, you almost don't notice it happening because you just take one of those club PAs and then, you know, someone, or another, they go, oh, we'll get him back next week and then they tell the club down the road and they, they get you down yeah. there and then they go, oh, well, I've got a friend that oh, yeah. Maybe he can do some, you know, this or that, or the other. And it's just this slow sort of swaying from from yourself, yeah. from who you are. And th- uh, this happens with a lot of people. And, yeah. they, and you know, it, sometimes it happens. Like, I mean, yours was huge temptation in terms of like financial temptation. Yeah. Some people, it's, you know, their mum telling them that they should be a lawyer. And they go, well, you know, I'll do that. And then they get 10 years down the line and they've swayed so far from who they are that they've lost that sense of their purpose. They don't even know the way back. Mm. It's almost that their their new identity, their false identity has become so much part of them that they don't know how to, they've built this group of friends. That's the other thing. Because then it's reinforced by the, the people you then associate with. You get the wrong type of people around you. And then, And it's hard to get back, right? I I I believe in that kind of um, uh, you know, uh, not law of
0: attraction, but you know, if you if you move in a certain direction, you take a step in a certain direction, you will you will move in that direction, and the further steps you take, you move further in that direction, and you will attract people that are moving in that same direction, and that's fine if it's going in the direction you want to, but if it's not, you're going to end up in a place you don't want to be, and that's why the number one first chapter that I do talk about is that passion and purpose, the purpose idea. How do you find your purpose? You know, and a lot of people ask that question and I I think it's that idea you've got to look at your like values your experiences your beliefs your your interests and 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 find that intersection between those you know what are your actual talents you know where where does that all kind of lie I think you've you've always got time to change that direction I think when you're if you're in your in life and you're doing law but you wanted to do i don't know you want to be an artist or whatever well you know why first of all you know what do you need to what what do you need to do to get to that position i I do believe that modern life unfortunately does create a lot of boundaries and think you can't do this or that you can't change direction if you're in this direction you can't go in the opposite and i think that's 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 such a shame and we we should change that look at medicine for example i mean imagine the eyebrows raised when i moved in the completely opposite direction and you know, and I, I don't mean this, and I hope it doesn't come across this way, but a lot of the things I've done haven't been done before by someone that's, you know, a junior doctor that's going through those ranks. It's, it's a first, and certainly in this country, Dr. Mike has done something similar in America, but in this country, it's quite different. Um, but I hope that people, what they'll take from that is that actually, you can change, you don't have to go down a certain path. And if you're not happy with the path you're going down, what are you going to do to change it? You know, what are yeah. your goals? Write it all down. I, I still do it now. Every now and then when I'm feeling a bit, oh, I need to, you know, think about where I go with things or I just need to have a moment. I write down all my thoughts, my goals, my ideas. Sometimes I just word vomit onto paper, whatever I'm just thinking in the moment. And then I leave that piece of paper for a day or so and I come back and I look at it and sometimes you think, like, what is written down here? <laughs> and I start circling stuff and I start thinking about, well, what, how does that connect? Why did I write that? What What am I thinking about when I'm looking at that? And, and then, then from that you draw take away that word vomit and make a new list of like you know what is my purpose number one you can you know what is my number one purpose that i want that, what is my purpose and then you know under that put your goals you know how am i going to achieve that what are my goals what are my aims how am i going to put it into practice and it's just a simple thing actually it's so easy you just need a pen and a blank piece of paper but i think everyone should do that so often i mean in business they talk about the five-year plan and, and all this kind of stuff but i think just as an individual just get out of your head sometimes you know get out on paper know what you're doing am i happy do i want to change it am i following when i write down my purpose am i actually doing that am i doing my purpose but also if i'm not what am i doing to achieve it because if you're not doing anything that will get you to that purpose then what are you doing
1: there's something what you're describing there is you're like interrogating yourself you're interrogating your thoughts your your underlying reasons why you're thinking things maybe thinking of pursuing things and in a world where there is this constant whispering this external whispering which is saying you should be an influencer you should be a YouTuber <laughs> that's the People will love you more yeah. if you're a millionaire. Yeah. You, and that is, we're exposed to that every hour of every day, no matter where we look. This external thing telling you what your purpose is, yeah. what the best purpose is. Yeah. And we know that, as you're saying, purpose is subjective. Mine's yeah. different from yours. But the world has a very clear idea yeah. of what the a very best good point. purpose is. It's very interesting. It's a very interesting thought. And, that, and this is why I, I'm such a big advocate of this, like, interrogation. In mm. fact, that's what's it's cured. It's, it's saved me in my life because 18 years old, I want my diary. It said Range Rover, hot girlfriend, million pounds before I'm tw- <laughs> yeah. Literally said yeah, million pounds yeah, before yeah. I'm 25. Range Rover sport. Yeah, yeah. That's, those were my goals in life. Came from a place of insecurity, obviously. I was Therefore, I was susceptible to that whispering, yeah. telling me what the best purpose and the way to... Millionaire is a, the way to happiness is. Um, and, but without that interrogation you've described you will go with that voice because it's fucking loud yeah right so there has to be a counter voice and by putting it on paper you're really attacking that external narrative which is which threatens to lead you astray right yeah and i i think it's it's that idea like you said every life is kind of all you've got in,
0: in influences within your life like friends and family they have common beliefs what your mum wanted you to do or whatever and that directs you then as you say you've got this massive uh, it's loud and quiet and that's the problem it's like an <laughs> undertone and a loud kind of bar. Is saying do this this is what what should make you happy i think that interrogation is very important i think anyone listening to this ask yourself honestly when is the last time you genuinely sat down and thought about what you want to do in life what actually is your purpose what makes you happy what is peace what 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 does peace mean to you you know and and if you haven't done it in the last year or so do it Take out a piece of paper. So all you need a pen and a paper. is a very easy <laughs> task. It's not a complex one. Write, write it down. It's amazing. It's such a, it's a really enriching and motivating process. And and again, the, the key thing is it's not like, it's not like, yes, I'm achieving it. It's not about that. And it's about going, well, you know, where what direction am I going in? If it's not the direction I want, what am I going to do to change it, basically?
1: i can't yeah. So, so and to do it often as well because again you're going to log in often to instagram and to you're going to be exposed to that external voice often so i think the practice has to the counter practice has to be done often as well which is that recentering to self right
0: and i think yeah I, I, absolutely and i think when you're talking about the instagram the 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 the, the voices the noise that you're seeing online particularly on, on that note and I, I try and tell everyone this go through your feed if you haven't done it recently go through your um followers and unfollow anyone that doesn't serve your hobbies your interests your beliefs your passions it's amazing how much we collect people that we're following that actually make us feel bad they're giving us the wrong noises they're making us kind of judge ourselves half harshly whether that's your body type or what they're achieving or they just annoy you unfollow it your feet if you're going to have this noise have it as a noise that reflect, reflects your purpose, your passion, your hobbies, your beliefs. And I think that will, for a lot of people, make a, a big difference. If you're going to have the
1: noise, have the good noise. Oh my God. I I don't, um I can't explain how important that advice is. Just thinking logically, if you go into your phone at the moment, you probably see, I, know, I probably spend several hours a day on social okay. media. That is several hours potentially polluting my, my brain with yeah. junk values. Yeah. making myself feel like shit there that is mental self-harm and and i so once upon a time quite literally i once upon a time i made that decision and so what you know because people listening to this they'll say well you know alex i can't unfollow this person because they are my Friend or yeah. my work colleague, but you can hit the mute. You button. can mute them. Yeah, mute them. <laughs> I mute ninety five p- yeah. percent of people in my timeline. Genuine on my Instagram, but ninety five percent of people are muted, and I'm exposed. Now everyone's gonna be looking and going, "Hang on, I thought we you yeah. were like, am I one in the <laughs> ten? Am I one in ten? No, I'm Do not, I watch your like, stories? Yeah. There's your answer. <laughs> <Yeah. ten. laughs> <Yeah. laughs> if I'm not in your stories, then uh, you're unfortunately you're yeah. muted, and it just yeah. is what it is. We've all got to protect ourselves. I agree. No,
0: I, honestly, no, that that hundred percent. Mm. If you can't unfollow, meet them. Just curate your feed, have it to be what you want to be. It's not just about the business or influence, it's it's about just general life. Let's be honest, most people spend a couple of hours on your phones and make that couple of hours either enjoyable or useful or funny. You know, and that's the same with like TikTok and stuff. I use TikTok mostly just for a bit of fun. So I follow mostly like cats doing stupid stuff or whatever <laughs> mm. anything that makes me laugh. So just it goes back to the kind of interrogating, why are you using that platform, why are you using that social media? is it serving your purpose and, and trying genuinely it's not easy but crying try and create those boundaries if you if i was going to say to anyone about boundaries around using your phone try and protect the last and first hour of each day the first hour is very hard because people get up in the morning you're up and i'm sure you're know, looking at you like oh god yeah. but, you know and even if you can do it to protect the first 20 30 minutes because the first thing people do when you wake up in the morning and there's a lot of um um scientific thoughts around this we are a blank canvas, a blank piece of paper. We are so vulnerable actually in the morning to our day being dictated based on what we see and what influences our day. So if you pick up your phone, you see your ex-girlfriend or you see something or you know Trump has said something or there's a new news piece that's really triggering you, you're neg- You're allowing external factors to dictate the start of your day. When you're talking about being productive, creative and hitting the day and winning at the day, that's not a good start. So if you can get up in the morning, leave the phone for the first 15 minutes. If it's an, ur- if it's an urgent message, fine. But get up, have your coffee, have your shower, do your exercise, have your walk, or whatever, then open your phone. Even yeah. if you can do it for 15 minutes to start <laughs> with, it makes a huge difference. And, and, and I find that benefit. Protect that morning and the evening, protect, you know, give that time. Because what people don't realize often is that what we see in the last kind of hour at night dictates a lot of what goes on in our brains. So if you are watching triggering stuff on TikTok, even if it's funny stuff, that is going to influence what your brain's doing from then on. Mm. So,
1: for bad I need to stop watching all these bloody murder documentaries before sleep I fall asleep watching a murder documentary I'd say 90% of the time and that's no exaggeration what do they but... say about CEOs oh, I know right <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> something you said there is really interesting and this, this could be a tough question so um, you talked about the you know Instagram giving um, false unhealthy false comparisons Love Island is the same mm. How yep. do you kind of like um, having been on the show? How do I find peace with it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, it's interesting because I, I it, it, there's two sides to it. I think that people watch Love Island for escapism, and a lot of people watch it and don't kind of it doesn't go past that level of just like just easy watching, fun stuff that you, you're seeing. But then for some people they're seeing these bodies and it is affecting their belief and their value within themselves. And that is what worries me And a big... You now, I, I sit on the ITV board for mental health, so one of the things we're, we're really looking at now is that we should be reflecting on particularly reality TV society as a whole, both in kind of diversity, you know, in terms of backgrounds, you know, but also body image as well, you know, and I think that's the direction we should be moving in, very importantly. And uh, something that I've really said before the series of Love Island we've got to see uh, that it reflects society as a whole, you know, whether they follow that advice, that's, that's down to them kind of thing. But you know, Mm -hmm. my, my real worry is that, you know, for some people it does send out that, that, that wrong message, but you know, it's difficult. I went on the show as myself, pretty much. The one regret I had going on the show is I think I probably trained very much for the show. If I did it now, I'd still train, but I'd probably do it less worrying about being, Like ripped or whatever but it is interesting because you know most people would say if they went on tv in that way they'd want to feel comfortable i think there's that balance of feeling comfortable in your own skin
1: but why but not to the extent extreme
0: that i went to you know i was training so hard and stuff and i was worrying about it too much now i'd be a bit
1: much more like you know they'd want to feel comfortable is an interesting thing because the reason they wouldn't feel uncomfortable is again because of what society's told us what you should look like and i i I think love island success is kind of is somewhat linked to the instagram culture we live in it feels like if instagram was a show yeah it would be love island
0: yeah and it's kind of what i mean by the comfort comfort i guess it's about what you where you feel that you want to be within your within your within yourself like at the moment i'm probably carrying a few more pounds and i i'm happy with i like i know that i move better in that way i feel more comfortable in that way and it's just being happy within yourself but not being influenced that i like for example i don't I'm not bothered though. I have a six pack, you know. I'm not. I don't. I wouldn't feel that now. Something me being comfortable means me having a six pack. I actually very happy just to be lean, to, be able to move, to you know feel energized and stuff. And that is what comfortable would mean to me now. But at the time, because I felt like oh, I needed to look with the abs and everything like that, I was like very much actually out of my comfort. You know, I was restricting my diet huge. I was overtraining. I wasn't spending time with friends. Saying before the show, I didn't see anyone for like twenty weeks. I found out on the February. I basically went to this interview uh, and I had no intention to kind of go on the show. It just kind of happened. And from there, I was offered the place and actually my consultant said, do it. And I had this obviously noise afraid in my head being like, take opportunities. like, all right, can I go for this? You know, I had 20 weeks between knowing I was going on and going on the show. Most people who apply the show apply in the September before, almost a year before. And in that year before, they're already in, you know, this certain shape and look this certain way. So I felt a lot of pressure from it. And as I say, if I went back, I'd do it differently. I, I would do it differently, but it's easy to say with hindsight, of course,
1: very easy to say with hindsight do you think do you think do you think love Island is good for one's mental health? Is
0: it good? I wouldn't say that it adds to people's mental health, no, but in a way. You know, if it's escapism that people enjoy and they watch it, I think the important thing is how people are perceiving what they're seeing. What you're seeing as a show, ultimately, it is just TV, isn't it? It's how you're perceiving it. But if you're finding that it's triggering you, don't watch it. The same with Instagram and unfollowing accounts mm. that not making you feel good or that are not serving your purpose. If you are, if you find that it's triggering you and how you feel, don't watch it. You know, I haven't watched this series. I mean, I've got a lot of stuff going on. I don't, I just don't have time to watch mm. to watch the show. Um, and I'm not missing out. I don't feel that I'm missing out.
1: My, my my issue there is that people people don't know if it the impact it's having, and I I, I remember this study by Professor Tim Kesser, mm. who studied um how people's values changed from yeah. what they from what they see on the TV, and he talks he does a study with these kids, and when kids watch um, the example is they watch um some people. Uh, another kid with not so good values playing with a really nice toy, yeah. and they've and they've shown the the, the kid watching the show, um, the advert for the toy. They've made the kid really want the toy, and then they've mm. and then they've given it to someone with really bad values just because they watched the advert of um, the toy. The kid will then, from that point onwards, choose to associate mm. with bad values, yeah. just because of it. So the kid didn't know what was going yeah. on, right? It's a bait. It's a kid. It doesn't yeah. it doesn't understand that its its values are being swayed just by what it's seeing on the yeah. TV. But then in its life, in the study, the kid will then go and choose yeah. bad values over good values. And it's that, obviously, you know, pe- and to be fair, like, most people aren't as, like, psychologically introspective as maybe me and you are. Yeah. So they are just... What, the thing is, know. and I
0: guess the point, and, and, and I completely see that side of it. I see that, I, my, my opinion, is good and bad to love iron. I'm like, there's most, like, most things like life, for example, social media. My point is, if you got rid of love iron tomorrow and you canceled it, it'll be replaced by something else. It's like social media, you can't, it's out now. Like reality TV, these kind of shows are out there. So what can we do about it? First of all, let's think about what we're putting on and what we're representing on there. And second is educate. And I think that's why, for example, one of the wellbeing videos are on social media. And a big part of that is like dealing with what you see online body image stuff which actually links and extends like you said from from love island it says education is the very important point within that if you're being aware mm. i think that is the part that we can control same with social media we can't get rid of twitter twitter you know there's some good stuff about twitter i think there's a lot of bad stuff about twitter i find it quite triggering a lot of the time can we get rid of it no it's not going anywhere so is it about learning how to manage what's going on in there and working with the social media companies to improve that space which is what we want to try and do yes is it also educating people about how to use that tool as well and that's the difficult thing you know and ideally if we get rid of all the bad things in life or things or the elements that are bad Mm. that would be amazing but it's some stuff out there we have to just learn to manage and learn you know how to deal with no i think you're right i think
1: that i think love island's definitely a a consequence of um a culture that is demanding that that type of show i think you're right that if you are to help um erode the demand then you have to kind of go to the root cause of We have to change what people want and
0: then that will... The the stuff on TV is like exactly what you said. It just reflects what people are wanting in that moment because that's what they believe they want. It's like what what papers write and what the headlines are. They're just reflecting what they believe people want to see or what they believe that people will be interested in I and guess. reinforcing it. And, and reinforce yeah exactly it's this cycle. And reinforcing mean, that yeah. cycle so by changing and going and, and into into schools and going well actually why does the why do you need to look like that to be happy does that actually make you happy looking like that is that something to aim for and changing that I think that is how we'll change what we see on screen
1: and um you worked as a as a doctor throughout covid mm. that is woof
0: yeah it was it was was It's odd because it was good and bad all at once. And I, I clearly have to justify why I'm saying there's an element of good to it. The bad part was obviously everything we saw. And I think Lewisham Hospital is one of the hardest hit hospitals. I mean, the amount of death that we saw was huge. And I saw so much death every day. Young people as well as old. And, and um, I think it was a real, I don't know, it was a real kind of, wow, this is happening. You know, feeling as we saw everything getting so busy, the recess department being full of patients, having to make very difficult decisions about um, situations and patients individually, and also how to manage the hospital in terms of capacity and ventilators. What do you mean by
1: difficult decisions.
0: Well, you know, when we see when we see a really unwell patient, in, in so recess is the place we see the sickest patients in hospital. We've got, generally, most departments will have minors, uh, majors, and, and and recess. Recess is the place that you are that if you're really unwell, and if we don't do something. there's a high chance that you're going to to die have serious outcomes, right? So if you're in there, generally you're pretty and well. And when we see a patient, even pre-COVID times, we have to make a decision about what we're going to do and how where the best places for their treatment and what the ceiling of treatment is as well, you know. For, for and I, what I mean by that is, for example, so we're seeing a patient in recess. Um, you know, for example, if we're seeing a patient that has loads of comorbidities, they've lots of a high burden of of of, of illness. Uh, it could be, uh you know, they might have diabetes, heart disease. They might have end stage kind of dementia. They might not be aware of where they are. They might be very elderly, very frail. If they are very unwell and and, uh, with an illness we have to make a decision about whether actually it is kind and correct to put them in intensive care with all the invasive wires the lines we put into central arteries putting the tube down down the airway you know what is what are we doing that for is that going to likely benefit that patient and lead to a good outcome and what we want is to treat people in a way that's kind and that we can we know that what we're doing is justified for that patient because that patient is at the centre of that approach. So we have to always make decisions about that. You know, if there's a young person, and it's not an age, very important to say age is not, is not, is not the factor that we make that decision based on upon being fragile and um, frail, physically which might be associated with age is something we think about but not age in itself but if you are a in, in your physical health young fit and healthy and we think that taking intensive care and doing all this stuff is likely to lead to a good outcome for you then obviously that's that's what we do but there's certain decisions where for example in the COVID, in the pandemic we had someone with dementia and maybe wasn't aware where they were that at the kind of end of their life and they've got this this horrible illness should we be putting them in intensive care and we have to make those very difficult decisions now important to say that Going to intensive care, or not going to intensive care, doesn't mean that you're not going to get treatment. We still oxygen, you know, the the lines for antibiotics, all these things. We still do that. But is it kind to put tubes down down people's airways? It's very difficult though to make all those those kind of decisions, and it's made between the intensive care department, the AE department. But these are really tough decisions to make, and um, and even people, younger people in these situations, so we had to make those difficult decisions with. And, um, you know, I think that was very, very hard. I think we were at a point, particularly at the start of the pandemic and also at Christmas, where we were pretty much nearing being overwhelmed. You know, I remember this Christmas, just after, I think it was January, I worked Christmas Day, and then it was a few days after that. So I think it was just just after New Year's in January. We we had, like, no ventilators left in the hospital. You know, we'd found, we'd found we managed to get hold of some, literally, the point where, like, oh, my God, we don't have any more. So, thank god that no one went without but it was really at that point where we're like wow we're like resource wise running out here because i don't know if you remember they declared a major incident in london and what that really means is that for healthcare professionals for doctors for heads of departments for heads of hospitals they are then in a position where they might have to make decisions about resources i.e do we give a ventilator to you or you that is ultimately what we're saying is that the pressure and the, the the weight on the nhs is at the point where we might have to decide you're having this ventilator you're not uh, and very fortunately like i certainly when i was in there we didn't have that situation uh, i wasn't faced with that situation but it was one that we were anticipating if things didn't get better so that's that you know it was pretty tough in that sense the good side of of uh, of being in a and e throughout the pandemic was that i wasn't on my own you know i was living on my own in london um i would have otherwise been at home the whole time i felt a sense of purpose going there um i felt that i was able to do something in that time and i was surrounded by my friends so it's an odd catch 22 of like the worst but also kind of helps do you have a worst day
1: throughout that period a day where you think that was the hardest worst day worst day throughout
0: the pandemic um oh, i I think there was a I, there was a day where we were I was in recess that day so we were kind of rotating different parts of the department so I was in the recess department and um, I was in there with a couple of the doctors and other nurses and we were pretty much at capacity so within the re, our recess department we have like what five six seven or eight beds seven eight beds in that recess area bearing in mind these patients that require a huge amount of care I mean these are you know trying to be near enough to one-to-one as we can to look after them because they're very unwell, they're very sick. Um, and we're at that point day, we had two patients per bay. So we had to put two beds in each bay because we were absolutely at capacity. And in fact, we're at the point where we're having to put some almost in the corridor area of the recess. So it's within one big room, big box room, but not in the bay. And that is very scary. And then we're also are having that day, I remember we had ambulances lining up so blue light ambulances so they're the ones bringing the sickest patients outside and you're looking at this situation going we're at capacity no actually we're, o- we're we've gone over the capacity we, we we don't have any more capacity so what do we do and that is very frightening not just in terms of space but in terms of right i'm looking after this patient this patient this patient this patient this patient they're all really sick they all actually need my one-to-one time how do we manage that situation and that is very very difficult, and a lot of a lot of people in the NHS face faced that across the country. You know, in parts of, for example, Saint Thomas's, they were had like one nurse for every five patients at some points during the pandemic in intensive care. It should be one to one intensive care.
1: How do you how do you deal with how do you deal with the forming a connection with someone and then losing them in that hospital ward, and that must have happened time and time again yeah. throughout the pandemic. Very tough. And I think one of the things that were
0: hardest um, was, you know, t- people couldn't believe it had happened to them. Uh, I saw a, I've got to be careful, of course, of confidentiality, but I saw a gentleman who came in who um, was a professional, middle aged man, was otherwise pretty well, had a family. A few days later, he was fine and uh, all of a sudden just deteriorated with his cough and breathlessness. By the time he came to us, his oxygen levels were incredibly low. He, he required a really high level of oxygenation. Even with the high level of oxygen we are giving through a mask, it was clear that he actually needed to have a tube passed down to take over his breathing. Because even with a high level of oxygenation and actually the pressurized mask we were using, we still weren't achieving adequate levels of blood saturations of oxygen. So it was not survivable to continue in that way. And we had to have a conversation with him. And I had to say to him, look, you know, we are going to have to intubate you. We're going to have to put you in induced coma. We're going to have to put a tube down your throat. We're going to have to take over your breathing you need to ring your family, we're gonna get the iPad, because we had this, you know, it's kind of sad we had an iPad there for people to talk to their family before we did these things, because we knew that roughly, if you get an intubated, it's about 50-50-ish, something like that of survival, it depends on the patient, there's a lot of different things, but the general rough kind of thing is that. Um, and we said, look, you're gonna to have to say, potentially say goodbye, because we don't know, we don't know what's gonna happen, and he was very unwell, but he couldn't, you know, he's still in his suit at the time when he came in, and he just couldn't believe it was happening. And it was that disbelief. He was like, am I really that sick? Was like, you know, we, we just explained everything as to why. And it was really, really hard watching someone going, how has this happened to me? And you have this moment of like, is this real? You know, is this some kind of, you know, dream nightmare, I guess. Um, and we had to intubate him. He, he did survive, and but he, he was very sick. And I think he was the, he survived by like a, like a hair's, hair strands kind of width of of from being from um from death, I would say. He was very, very unwell was in intensive care for a long period of time, but he did make it through. But he could easily have not. And I think witnessing those kind of events, and I've witnessed many other times with even younger people who didn't make it through, um, that is very tough. That's very difficult. Because when I go home at the end of that shift, I'm like, well, will he make it, will he not? It's very, very hard.
1: And then when you find out they haven't, I, I just the constant the constant bad news associated with that job Mm. most of the time a and e the the beauty of a and e is vast
0: majority of the time we get it right vast majority of the time people survive people um we make people better and that's we're very fortunate about actually most of the time we spend our time making people better and it works um but the pandemic's very hard as but but in even within that of course there's death i mean you know I don't know the actual exact figures, but every day or so, or every day, some every day someone will die in the A&E, uh, multiple times a day, people will die across the hospital. That is unfortunately the reality of the job that we do. So we do get used to that. But I think in the pandemic it's the volume of that, the amount of death we saw was just exponential. So you kind of, you balance in your head because you think, well, 95% of the time, this is a good outcome, we do good, and we help people and people get better. But in the pandemic, there was a swinging of that balance to being like, oh my gosh, I'm trying my best for all these patients, but a lot of people aren't making it. A very, very important thing to say here is obviously talk. I am working in a position where I'm the recess department of a very busy hospital in A&E in London. We know that the mortality rate with COVID is around 1%. So I'm not, don't want to send like, sensationalize that element but i am seeing that percentage of people who are the sickest who are in the hospital so it's obviously important to say that so sure. there are very many that 30 percent don't even have any symptoms but i think it's very important for people to realize that there is very much two ends of that spectrum and at the very sharp end if you're a very sharp end of that spectrum then then it can be very serious
1: so my last question on this covid topic is you know because of that perspective that you do have in the spectrum the side of the spectrum that you sit on when you come on online And you see people going, oh, COVID's not true. Conspiracy. Oh, vaccines don't work. COVID's not real. It's some government, blah, blah, blah. It's the 5G masks, blah, blah, blah. What do you think? Well, I mean, forget
0: almost for a second the, the disrespect that it shows to all the doctors and nurses that have worked in that situation and had to deal with the things we've dealt with. And actually, the professionals that have died of COVID, don't forget, we have lost quite a lot of NHS staff. I actually, we nearly lost one of my good friends who was a nurse at Lewisham. She had intensive care for three months. She nearly died uh, of COVID, treating patients in, in recess. But also, the the respect to all the people that have lost their lives, you know, from this. The, and, and the families that now have to live have been one of the you know the the groups of people that that have lost it's 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 very upsetting i mean you know, people are going around i mean people are going around to hospitals and going to waiting rooms of like boots or outpatient reception are going look the hospital's empty it's like yeah it's empty because we've closed all like because all the doctors and nurses are pooled into the acute settings in the hospital to look after the rammed wards of patients that we need to care for but the public see this picture of an empty reception room and think, oh, the hospitals aren't busy um, You know, so it's, it's, but I think the vast majority of people out there are good. Most people have been incredibly supportive. And the, the amount of support we've had for the NHS has been unbelievable. The fact that the 73rd birthday, the NHS has awarded um, the George Cross of, of, I think it's for bravery, isn't it? Or for, but anyway, so it's the highest recognition, isn't it? That, that it can achieve is a really good thing. And I hope that actually people have realised now how much we need the NHS, how lucky we are. I mean, you've been to America. You know, the beauty is if you're here in this country, if you've, God forbid, you're cycling home from work one day and you get no October, you get hit on the head and you have a bleed in your brain, you will go to a hospital, you'll be operated on by a, a neurosurgeon who will look after you. You'll be in a hospital bed, you'll have all the rehabilitation that you need and support, even if it's for many months. And you will, at the point of that service, at the point of care, you won't pay a penny. And that is incredible. If you compare that to the God knows how many hundreds of thousands of millions that would cost in other countries, we're very lucky.
1: Oh, my God. Anyone that's against the NHS only needs to go spend a week in a New York and just go, you know, speak to people about um, their relationship with their health. Yeah. For us, we don't, we don't think about it in the same way. People in the US have to choose their job based on health yeah. options and they have to, and when they get, you know, when they lose their job, they're losing their healthcare, yeah, and it's just, and we don't even consider it. No. And I tell you what, from living in New York for three years, I'd much rather have it this way. I, I fit and it's given me this huge sense of gratitude for the NHS because we just totally take it for granted, especially people that haven't experienced the alternative. I
0: mean, I, 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 I um, a few years ago, I got sepsis. Uh, I was actually working in A and E, and i day in a shift in Lewisham, and about I started having fever in the afternoon, and by by late afternoon, I didn't really didn't feel well. I actually cycled home about six miles from work really struggling i was really fit at the I was struggling to get home got home i was like pulse i'm having a fever oh gosh i'm actually quite sick i was like, a bit of a realization got on the tube to go to uh saint thomas's at westminster pretty much collapsed in the door of saint thomas's ended up in recess and had the most incredible care I was in hospital for a week with sepsis but they saved my lives and i was like wow and i saw it was really interesting because i saw the nhs from not as a worker but as a patient and i was like god we are so lucky i literally had everyone looking after me the care i had and let's be frank i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for the treatment i had and at the end of the week or whatever thankfully i had a quick recovery i just walked out of the hospital and and with and i was like that's it you know i've had this amazing care i don't have to pay anything and i and i'm still here to tell the tale you know so i think i really hope that people will support the nhs more than ever now coming yeah. out of it and protect it and make sure we don't strip it of any more of its money
1: <laughs> um, i want to talk about 2019 the which was the year you know, 2020 yeah the year you lost your brother mm. um i i i saw your interview with lad bible and i saw the um i can't i can't quite you know i can't quite shake that that image of you sat at dinner mm. and you said about your your dad's phone mm. phone call can you take me back to that that moment?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's almost a year to the day now. I think the 23rd of July will be its, uh, the anniversary of his death. But, you know, the year has gone very quickly. And it's very odd. It feels like yesterday, but, yeah, very odd with the time. But, um, yeah, I was sat um, at dinner uh, in London with some friends. Uh, we actually just ordered a, a few drinks. Um, about to order kind of uh, starters as mains. I was busy looking at my menu, thinking what we're going to eat and whatever. I think, oh, it's a great place. This is, you know, enjoying myself and... The phone went, and I think my dad would say, look, if you, because I do a lot of stuff with filming or whatever, you know, if you ring once, just, if you just want to chat, ring once, and I know you're ringing for chat, and I'll call you back, but if you ring twice or more, I know it's something important, and I'll always answer, doesn't matter what situation I'm in, so he rung twice, in fact, I think it was going on the third call, all right, okay, I need to answer this, and I could hear in his voice instantly that something really bad happened, it's weird, when you, when you hear that rattle, or that kind of tone in someone's voice, there's only one thing that has happened. And I just said straight away, like, who's who's died? Like, who's passed away? Like, what's happened? And he said, clear uh, has passed away. clear is dead. And I was like, what? Uh, and it was weird. The whole world, like, closed in. And I can't explain it. It sounds very dramatic, but it was like almost a spotlight came onto me in that moment. And I was like, no, it can't be. I just couldn't believe it. Um, and it the disbelief. And he said, yeah, he's passed away. And then we had to drive. I my middle brother, Elliot, who's in the RAF. He drove up to London. He, he works out just outside in one of the bases. And he came in to fetch me. And we drove back together. And it was kind of a five-hour drive back to West Wales. And it felt like 10 eternities. Like, we, every mile was at like the longest mile. And I went into every, like, corner of my mind. But you just couldn't fathom it, really. You know, and you, I think that's the thing about suicide or, you know, about when these things happen you know it can happen out of nowhere and you just haven't seen it and you've been hit by this train and it was kind of a weird like we were talking earlier on about Freya and having the opportunity to say goodbye like having that closure I didn't get that with him you know he was supposed to come to London the week after and then we were going to go back to Wales together and it's the first time I'd have seen him in a long time because of the pandemic and all of a sudden I was like wow I, I don't get any closure that's it then you know and I think that has been varied and continues to be very difficult the lack of you know, what, why, you know, why didn't he talk to me about it? You know, as someone who knew the work I was doing around mental health, particularly during the pandemic, um, you know, why didn't you ask me for help? You know, um, it's very, very hard.
1: I, I saw you said that one of your biggest sort of regrets as a family was not seeing the signs. Mm. And in hindsight, you can start to think, well, you know. Yeah,
0: it's one of those things, isn't it? I mean, it's, it, it, it's you know, he was very worried about his exam results uh, coming up, at you know, Understandably, so he's placed a place at med school that he's very excited. He saw what to me. He's very excited about that. He's future planning about it and very looking forward. Um, and you know, I think probably in the weeks before, he probably was a bit more anxious about the pandemic. And I thought, well, you know, he's been locked up quite a bit with all the, the restrictions, but we're going to see him next week. But nothing out of what I would say is what you'd expect as a you know, 19 year old kid that's been kind of stuck in the whole time. Um, but now it's easy. It is easy when you look back and you think, in hindsight, oh, that was a sign of that, that, and that. But you're going to have that regret, aren't you? You know, you're always going to. It's human nature. Like my mum is always has that sense of guilt around it. You know, and she can't control what happened. It's it's his action. It's his choice that he made. But for everyone around that person, it is that guilt that you carry. I think forever.
1: And there was no lasting indication of how he was feeling. He didn't. He hadn't said anything to anybody
0: no i mean he was he was really fed up with being kind of the, the pandemic again and he was like worried about his exam results we talked about that a lot and i'd asked him about how he was feeling he was like yeah but once he got the he got through this bit you know i'm kind of all right kind of thing and nothing that would make you think that you know and go down to that that route but it's one of those things that people often when people go going to protect, you know take their own life or you know not all the time but quite often people will sometimes well at least in his case, you know, they don't give the warning signs because they've made their decision of what they wanted to do. Um, And the shame is, I think the biggest shame, I think is that he just obviously couldn't feel the sense within him that he could ask and say, this is how I feel, can I have help? And when I talk about a lot of the work I wanna do around stigma and people go, oh yeah, we're talking about loads of stigmas done. So no, because, you know, he felt to the point where he'd rather take a, a fine, you know, a fine, a decision that had a binary decision, if you like, with his life, he felt so much like this with it, that he couldn't talk about it, that he took that decision. So I think there's so much cultural stuff, there's so much stuff around stigma that we've still got to do to change that. Because, you know, if you'd have said something, you'd have talked about it, we could have, you know, I big believe that we can get through anything, we can change, we can can work through most things, but you've got to have the opportunity for help. And I think that's where there's an interesting um, conversation around, yes, mental health services clearly need real funding. I'm going to, I'm, there's no counter-argument against that and we need to do more. But we actually have to work on the education around mental health and the, the stigma element too, because in his scenario, even if you had the best mental health system in this country ever, he if you didn't ask for help, how is he going to access that service? And I think we lose too many particularly young men each year who are not actually accessing any help or reaching out at all before they take that decision. We're losing the chance to save those people. You know, and I think there's that balance, you know, we need to work on the stigma, we need to work on the funding, um, in combination to kind of change this. But, you know, for him it's too late, you know. But I, I hope that through my work I'm doing now, I can't take the pain or what whatever way of what's happened, but I can hopefully prevent other families going through it. Because it's an awful burden to carry, you know, and I've got to carry it for whatever, you know, hopefully a long time, but you know, whatever length of my life is, I have to carry that. You know, but that doesn't go away. It's always there
1: this is a tough question but you just said that you you have to carry that burden and people often think that especially people that haven't aren't are naive to grief yeah. they think that it's you go through the process like break like a breakup and then you're you know your business as usual but you've got to carry that grief for a long time yeah, yeah. Do you, is there a mixture of emotions in terms of feelings towards the decision he made um that you also contend with
0: yeah i think you go through i think. you go, through every emotion of like anger, upset, frustration, sadness, feeling of guilt, every spectrum of negative emotion, I think, and you cycle through that. And I think the process of I've had with grief is kind of going through the kind of shock phase, you know, anger shock, upset, um you know, the kind of sadness through it, and trying to come to a place of acceptance. I guess is where you've got to try and get to. And I, I don't know. I'm guess somewhere on the way. I guess on the way to that, but you kind of go backwards and forth at sometimes you know i think your grief is not a linear process i think it's very much that zigzag of kind of you get better get worse get a bit bit, bit better get a bit worse um and you know you carry what i think is like a black box in your head with it you know when it first happens you're just staring into this abyss of this black box of sadness and everything and then eventually you learn to close the box eventually it shrinks a little bit and hopefully eventually you can put it on your shelf and you can sometimes go and sit and ruminate with it but then you can put it back when you when you need to and i think that is what happens and i think that's why you will always carry it you can't get rid of it you know you never stop loving that person you know you just have to learn to live with that black box in your head basically and
1: i imagine that's quite i mean losing i've got two brothers so i'm i imagine that's quite an informative life in, uh, in tragic informative life incident that then Changes the way you view your own life and choices yeah. and decisions. And- I, I
0: think it puts into perspective. Thing I think it puts things in perspective, but interestingly not as well. I still get annoyed and upset about the same things I got annoyed about before. But then I have to go, Alex. Like in reality, some things you've had to kind of deal with is probably fine. And I think it, it's it's funny in in that way. But it also does. It does mean that you know I I try. It's kind of given me a, another purpose that you know in life. I guess that I want to kind of work on, and I think it's it does does make me think much more about like i want to do i want to make sure that in life i, I can impact positively on people and, and if i can influence people in a positive sense in this space then i think that would be success to me i think that if, you, if it was to ask like what was the meaning what is the definition of success to me i think it probably would be feeling that i've made a genuine impact in that mental health space and that other young people other people won't take their life or will seek help get help before they're at that point or when they're at that point i think that would be success for me and yeah i think that has that has changed a lot of that kind of mindset in my head. but i also want to live life a lot more i've also like because it's happened i'm like i want to go on holiday i want to enjoy my love cars i want to go to Formula one this weekend i want to go and enjoy my hobbies it's made me want to like live as an enriched life as i can
1: you said that you kind of your life will always kind of be defined as before and after Mm -hmm. that incident and I was, when I was reading about the interviews that you've done in the podcast you've done um, following Losing Your Brother, they always gravitate back to, the, to this conversation, mm. right? It's almost, and, and, and it's become part of um, one of the things people like me want to talk mm. to you about and ask you about. So I, was, I was sat there wondering, how does that feel? when you know that if you go and do an interview go into a podcast that at some mm-hmm. point it's going to come back to that topic or tragic topic of losing your brother well so I, I think it's true it's that before and after
0: element isn't it I, I, I don't think I am entirely the same person as I was before I think in fact and it makes a lot of sense if you're going to experience a massive life changing event it's probably going to change you if it's changed your life it's going to change you I'm still the, at the core of the same person I always was but I think I've probably been slightly moulded a bit differently and, and I think I don't I don't think I'm entirely the same. And I don't really know what I mean by that. And I can't really give an answer to in what way am I different, but I'm just not quite the same person, I think. And potentially it's because I have to carry this box, you know? Um, but yeah, in terms of kind of interviews and things afterwards and talking about it, as odd as this might sound, in many ways it's therapy. I know that might be maybe not the answer you probably expected, but in a way, it's a way of me talking with different people about an experience that has shaped my life and hearing their thoughts on that as well and and i've taken a lot from speaking to people about it and 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 i think talking is good um and i think bottling these things up and hiding away wouldn't help and it's interesting because i when he passed away we took the decision to go public and tell people because you know, he passed away, I didn't want there to be any confusion, Has he died of COVID, you know, what's happened, you know, how has he passed away? I wanted people to understand, No, he died of, you know, of mental suicide, he had a mental, ha- he died, died of a mental health illness, you know, that was very important for us to make that kind of statement, but I knew in that point that the people then would, you know, that we would end up talking about this, but the way I kind of see it is that even on days it's difficult to talk about, if it helps someone else, if someone else is listening or watching this podcast and they go, you know, I'm going to watch out for the signs in other people or I'm going to be much more aware of this now or if I'm struggling, I'm I'm going to give it this chance. I'm going to speak to someone. I'm going to go to, to, to a professional. I'm going to speak to my family, talk to my friends. Then that to me is worth doing that interview. You know,
1: The other consequence of speaking about it so often um, and being known as someone that has, you know, part of your um, story tragically is that your brother took his own life is you will get, and I, I know I have mm-hmm. a fraction of this, but you will get thousands of dms of people who are feeling Mm. suicidal who Mm. are you know in a very 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 dark place in fact i imagine if you opened up your phone now and went on your dms it wouldn't take long for us to find a couple of those just at the top of your inbox right that is i mean that must feel like it's heavy,
0: it's heavy. heavy and yeah. I think this role has been, I mean, I, I really enjoy what I do in the youth mental health work. And I think a lot of the work we do is very, very positive, very uplifting, actually. And I think the work, particularly on wellbeing, is really, really positive. And I want the conversation around mental health to be one about how exciting it is as a space by empowering yourself, giving yourself the tools to live a happy and successful life in whatever definition that is. But of course, there is the other side of it, of having that weight of those who are, uh, are struggling. Um, and you know what I try and do is, work across you know ca- basically in areas and campaigns that can help the majority in these things and you know, i realize that sadly i can't sit and help and fix everyone's that's yeah i mean if i tried i would fail i'd probably cripple and cry if i tried to do it you know so i try and look at doing the big projects and help people in that way if that makes sense but you know of course when i, sp- I speak to a lot of people because i go out and speak to young people i speak to people who are, who are struggling in person and it is heavy sometimes but again I go back to if I feel like I've managed to help them and that's that then that really helps and of course a lot of the content that I make is around you know speaking about out about well-being about mental health I feel that I'm able to influence people in a positive way but of course it is heavy it is hard it's not it's not an easy thing uh, and I'm sure and it's the same anyone you know you talk about a lot of emotive uh, subjects as well particularly around the space actually mm-hmm. and your podcast and have them uh, for a long time so you of course get those messages and it's difficult, isn't it? Because you can't help everyone, is yes, the truth. Yeah, you can't. When I say you can't help everyone, you can't individually help yeah. everyone. And, and you I also know think logically that's
1: hard. that the best return on your time would yeah. be, in, in that case, making just in the case of Instagram, I know that the best return on my time, if I want to help people, would be to take that one hour that I could have spent going back and forth with someone in my DMs and make it into something that could reach a million people yeah. by making a video, for example.
0: Yeah, it's the same It's the same idea of like A&E. You in know, A&E in and in a shift in A&E. Uh, and I still, I do it because I really, really love it, selfishly, selfishly maybe. maybe. But if I do a shift in A&E, I can help 11 or 12 people, which is really, and I'm not taking away from that at all because the change you make in that person's life, literally saving people's lives, okay? So I don't see it as, as it's like, oh, I can help more, it's better. But if I'm using my platform in the mental health space, particularly in what I'm trying to achieve, I can reach so many more people um you know because in AE we're fixing people with problems that we can fix in that moment it's no. so the idea of A&E you know the work I'm doing is really prevent preventative, preventative. so I that's what I realized that's why I stepped away more since post-pandemic from the A&E work because I've realized that that is fixing the problems when they've happened I want to work on that preventative side and reach as many people as possible so that's why that's yeah. that kind of that value of time of course
1: makes perfect sense I actually watched your video on on this last night when you were announcing that you were making the shift and I'm sat there thinking like and just this is what I was thinking yeah. I was thinking obviously I was like mm. there's not a lot of people that have the ability to reach millions a day with a preventative message so mm. I feel like and this is not me trying to tell you how to live your life but I was like that's obviously the best return on your time yeah. is to work in the preventative end which you you've talked about today um do you think you've got balance in your life um I think I'm finding it so probably no
0: a binary answer is a binary answer. I, I think we're all trying to do that. And as How is someone, your
1: life out of balance?
0: I think at the moment, particularly coming out of the pandemic, I'm still trying to figure out the workspace stuff. Like as before, I worked in a kind of two days a week. Then I'd work from home and doing stuff. But now I'm moved kind of out of the A&E sphere as much, even though I, I'm going back to do some shifts. I'm, I'm not going to be in as much as I was. I'm just trying to find that balance of switching off and switching on to so the working day you know especially because so much of my work is across instagram and stuff i'm finding that that challenge and people go well hang on this is what you talk about a lot in your book and stuff it's like yeah but being aware of the problem doesn't mean you always got it fixed or it doesn't mean you got it down all the time most of the time i'm I'm getting there and i'm pretty good at it things like getting out on the walk in the morning getting my exercise in my sleep stuff i'm doing all right but the thing of switching off the phone and my instagram particularly that is the bit i'm still not quite finding the balance on and as I say, finding that balance between being at work and not being at work. But the truth is, that's okay. Because most of us in life, no one has got life down. I don't think there's anyone I've ever met, they've got entirely got their life down. They might have their career down, they might have problems in their family, or they're falling out with their girlfriend or whatever. No mean, one's not got it down. No, no, no. <laughs> that sounded like uh, but, me. Sorry. <laughs> me. No, but I mean, I mean it, everyone has a time where, oh, really. like, at any time something's going too well, you know, something's not good. <laughs> something's going to happen. So I think it's it's just being honest with yourself and going like right you know at the moment I'm that's what I'm trying to do so I'm look, actually looking for an office space now at the moment so I'm going to define my space that I work in you know so it's being realizing the things you're that the challenges you have and actually like we said earlier what are the steps you're taking to fix those challenges to find that balance one of the things that I've done which has worked really well is that on the weekends by and large and I stick this very strictly weekends are mine again now you know i worked for almost a whole year throughout the whole pandemic across being on tv public health england stuff being on instagram youtube all this stuff and i was working almost every day and ridiculous hours between you know, full-time and any and everything else it was crazy hours right and it was only going to lean to me being burnt out you know and i think you know and that's fine for a short period of time it's not fine for the long term so now i've fought back and dragged back my my weekends mostly mostly got my weekends back to actually do stuff with my family and my friends go to the Formula One go to Goodwood or go and watch tennis and stuff you know very fortunate to be able to do these things but when I'm old and I look back on my life I want to remember and look back and go actually I didn't make the most of life it didn't just work all the time you know work, it's, it is work-life balance is those cliched old things but it is
1: important to have you mentioned something there um about you you're doing an indirect at me about my poor relationship with my family and my girlfriend. was it is indirect at you. It just happened an <laughs> so example. I, so I was throw that back at you. Um so <laughs> in terms of your dating situation, yeah. your relationship situation. Um you posted a photo not so long ago of your um girlfriend, mm-hmm. um, Ellie. Ellie. Okay. You're you are happy I don't want to say her name, <laughs> but we'll go there. Um new new girlfriend, new relationship. Yeah, yeah. I mean you know i look at the pandemic scenario i mean i was working
0: in the hospital and you know the work i was doing was going well and all that kind of stuff pretty clear i'm losing his life let's just focus on that part of it um but my relationship suffered because i worked so hard in that sphere you know my girlfriend at the time moved back to bournemouth where her family was so i was working ridiculous hours not seeing her at all because of the pandemic the restrictions being separated and my relationship suffered so i've been i've been in that situation and um it ended for that reason. We were in a relationship for like two or more years, and I think it was quite a serious relationship at the time. And then, you know, the pandemic and my focus on the work probably was resulted in the end of that relationship. So, that was a, a big thing. I think part of coming back to work life balance and now going into this new relationship, I think I'm trying to make sure that I'm investing in both in all in those aspects of my life as well you know the the family the friends the relationships it's not all about the work or you know the campaigns or the things I'm doing you've got to again it's finding that balance. that balance but I you know I learned I learned from that and I don't regret it. I, my, my role in that pandemic was your to current, be there. Your in current A&E. relationship. No, no. <laughs> yeah, I, don't, <laughs> I don't regret choosing to be an Amy and to do what I did in that pandemic because that was my purpose at that moment. That was the right thing for me to do. And sadly, sometimes following your purpose has outcomes and things that it affects. And that's the way I see it.
1: In, the, in, the, in chapter six of your book, when you're talking about relationships, you, you talk a lot about how, to, how we meet each other in this day and age. And you talk about some of the dating apps, et cetera. How did you meet her?
0: we actually met uh, in person uh, oh, really? in, in the in the kind of traditional idea. way like in <laughs> when there was the kind of break in the pandemic, you could could meet people and just at just at a, a pub actually just really? natural normal meeting place but obviously that's changed so much now i mean i'm not on the dating apps for the reasons that you know i think for obvious reasons um but that has become so much... Too many weird. inquiries. <laughs> 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 uh, that, <you> know, <laughs> I love how you, ha- you have to brush over that. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, that is that is the thing, isn't it? Is that is where people are meeting each other now. And I think that's why in the book I didn't brush over that topic. Because mm. we have to accept that people are meeting each other through all these various apps, whatever it might be, and the technology and, and things now. But it's, it's about not forgetting that at the heart of that, that connection, that in-person and physical connection that you build with someone needs to be there as well. It, it can't just all be online. It's like an entry point to meeting people, isn't it? But I think it's a, it's an interesting one. Things have changed so much. I mean, I, 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 are you on the dating apps? You I'm not on the dating apps. Currently? No,
1: I couldn't do that. No. Unfortunately. No, no, no. no. <laughs> not that I'd want to, but yeah. I couldn't,
0: no. No, but it's changed no. so much for people. I think the, the, the world of dating, and I think the, one of the things I do worry about, I don't know what you think about this, but I think... The world has become so what's the word, like throwaway? Things are like you can date someone, see you on a date, bump, gone, next time. And it that, that I worry about a little bit about that, about Shadow people connections. Yeah, yeah. Not real, like even amongst friendships and stuff, people are just like right in and out. It's like a swipe left, swipe right kind of idea. And I, I worry about that a little bit. Why are you hard to date? Um, I think that over the years that I've been so focused, I think, on my work and the things that I want to do driven in that space i mean yeah like there's, there's always an element of selfishness isn't there when you when you focus on something to the extent that you have and and, and and i have certainly particularly for example in the pandemic it becomes almost selfish because even if you're doing it for an altruistic means it becomes it's becoming something you are doing so intensively that other people are being maybe not, not being having the focus that they're expecting or you're not giving attention to other areas so it's become selfish doesn't it And i think that makes it challenging but i'm getting much better at that I hope Ellie would say that as well.
1: <laughs> well, we spoke to her and she, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. she, yeah, she said,
0: "She yeah. uh, actually Ellie, come he on out.' Doesn't say, yeah, <laughs> he he's on his phone all the time. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. What relationship advice would you give me if you've learned something? You know, I'm single at the moment, trying to f- fix that situation. But what, what advice would you give me that you've learned as being a you know a very purpose-driven, busy guy? Um, what's the one thing you think? Do you know that's the most important?
0: I think the first thing is don't try and fix it." um Brilliant. i think it's that acceptance i think i I don't think I, I big believe i don't believe that happiness is is like altered whether you're in a relationship or not your state of happiness is like a it's an internal thing relationships are, other people are external they do add to that of course i'm not clearly i you know be worrying if i didn't think ellie didn't make my life happy but you can she can add to something that's existing mm-hmm. if it's not there in the first place there's nothing to add to so um you know i i always think it's it's on focusing, focusing on yourself and your passions and interests, and try and meet someone that will genuinely... It's so cliche, but it is. I think it is really, really true that add, genuinely adds to you as a person. Um, you know, if you're rubbing up against someone, your your purposes aren't aligned in some way, there isn't some kind of crossover in your directions in life, I don't know if that's going to work. You know, so you kind of need someone else that's got... Uh, uh millions and millions of them. Oh, <laughs> no, the same, sorry, yeah. to build a massive empire of podcasting whatever no i'm joking uh, but it's, it's sharing common ground isn't it it's finding something that adds to you in some way but i mean even with you know with Ellie now for example you know she recognizes in me when i'm starting to get stressed and working like particularly mental health work does cause me a lot of stress sometimes ironically um and she recognizes that and she's really great at helping me step away and say do you know what you've done a lot in that space let's step away for a moment and take take a bit of time you don't need you when do you stop you know that quiet line you know and then to stop and she adds in that way a huge amount a sense of calm to my life actually which is which is really great so it's I, I do feel that if you're with someone whether it's a even it's a friendship your friend should surely add to your life in some way if they're not adding to your life are they truly your friend hmm very deep thoughts no yeah no but it's so mean, what are your it's thoughts me... about it i mean what are you, what are you looking for in your next girlfriend this is
1: no it's a good question so what am i looking for in my my next girlfriend um i've, I've actually always been pretty clear oh, your final girlfriend yeah because i do the podcast a lot. so i always ask these questions and i ask them to a range of guests and i've got i mean 10 years ago i would have told you about hair colors and nonsense like that right yeah. and i've got more fundamental over the last decade and i'm at the point now where one of uh, really three things which is i want them to help me um, become a better version of myself, mm. purposefully ambiguous. Mm. So that could be a more kind person. It could yeah. be more spiritually in touch. It could be more successful in my business, but help me become a better person yeah. and vice versa. Yeah. yeah right? Yeah. So yeah. Because well, yeah, 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 yeah. um, the second thing is um, sexual attraction, yeah. which you write about, and you write about the importance mm. of, of having those conversations of and being open about that in your book. Um, it's just important. I've mm. had everything else and yeah. not that, and it doesn't work, yeah, right? No. So, uh, and the last one was, I, I would refer to it as like mental stimulation, which mm. is just being able to connect intellectually yeah. around topics, Um and I think if I can, those are the three things. Everything else is kind of, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I know there's going to be loads of bullshit. You can't, as we talked yeah. about earlier, all things come with a cost. Yeah. So it's really, yeah. and that's another point is this really important question, which I, I've come to ask myself, which isn't, which used to be, are they perfect? Right. <laughs> and I've, <I> over <laughs> my, Alas, you'd be looking for the whole of your <laughs> yeah, lifetime. Yeah. Yeah. Unicorn, I'm fucking yeah, yeah, But yeah. now it's refrained and it's now, is it worth it? Yeah. I know exactly what you're saying. Do you know what I mean? First of all,
0: I agree with all your three points uh, entirely. And all of them are required, I think, to be in there um, for for it to kind of work. But yeah, I mean, no one's perfect. We're all in... The the beauty of the world is everyone's imperfect. You know, we'll all have things that people would say, Alex, that's a really annoying trait of yours. You know, we're going to have that, right? It's finding what you... It's finding is the good worth the things that you maybe don't think are as perfect about that person and when you found that in someone you've really won you know being like Do you know what? i accept their imperfections they accept my imperfections but the good and the combined good parts of each mm. of us makes it worthwhile and i think that is the ultimate goal isn't it really yeah
1: just to find someone that's worth the bullshit and I mean, we all have bullshit. And this yeah. is what really, what this, it's a really introspective thing where I realized that I am so imperfect. So the pursuit of finding someone that is perfect is such a nonsense thing yeah. to do when I'm so clearly imperfect by whatever definition you want to use.
0: We're all like we're all like jigsaw shapes, aren't yeah, we really, just, in our lives, and you kind of got to be able to fit. And it's also the practicality of life. You need to have a, like careers, that, and it's so difficult in modern life, like people have opposing careers that don't work together. It's like there's so many bits of that jigsaw. But I think, again, it comes to even stuff about careers if the other bits and the sum of the rest equates to that being worth it then you find a way to make it work you know you find you find a way to you know make that relationship grow and and work but you just got to find that right it's finding that right person i think and i think if you go into it with that mindset with those three kind of key ideals and, and things that you're looking for then yeah hopefully you won't go too far wrong
1: well, I have to ask you one last question, which is, you know, this is a business podcast at the end of the day, at yeah. least I say it is. At yeah. least that's the category I put it in. Um, and you've started a business prescribed, which is in the the well being wellness space. Um, why um, you were already busy? What are you doing? And uh, tell me how hard it is. Well, funny if it started from a place of um,
0: uh, I love bath bombs because I right okay. So I have to like stop myself from doing things. I need to like put myself in a place where I sit down, I right, relax and I unwind. Getting in the bath. You know, put your phone away from the bath. You can't do very much, really. you're sat in the bath, right? Put some music on, listen to your podcast. Well, occasionally, I have like the bath. That's not image you probably want to think. But anyway, <laughs> I sit in the bath, listen to the podcast, right? So just it helps me chill out. I chuck a bath bomb in or whatever. And I was doing a showing on my stories. I was it chucking in the bath bomb and on my stories, and I chuck the phone away to get in the bath. And people start saying, "Why didn't you do it yourself? Why? Didn't you get lush is great, but there's no one in that space. Why didn't you create it?" And I thought, I actually do a lot of stuff in my life that's very heavy. It's very stressful. This would be a really exciting business to do so i kind of started looking into it and a few months later we've you know we've got we're doing a range of bath bombs which i'm very proud of the vegan bath bombs we're trying to th- i say environment in mind because i think sustainability is a word that's very tricky to say that your journey is truly sustainable um environment in mind and we're growing our product range you know the idea of prescribe is that you're prescribing yourself time investing in yourself and in self-care and i think that's what I was doing, getting into the path and that's what I want the brand to be. So it's going to be candles, shower products, uh, you know, uh, self creams and moisturisers, everything around that self care space. But it's great; it's booming quick because I think people are so interested in this space. It's what is a three billion uh, uh, pound uh, space in the market at the moment, isn't it? It's a huge industry that's growing, and people want to genuinely take care of themselves. And it's just yeah, it's it's it's, it's very exciting. Um, is you your know, first it's business? It's my first business. Yeah, are you CEO? First. I'm CEO. How you
1: How are you finding that? It's It's
0: It's It's outside the comfort zone. I mean, yeah. I, when we talk about it, it's, it's, it's well outside the comfort zone. But I really it. enjoy it. I, I I really enjoy it. I've got a great team around me. We've got like a small team. You know, it's not compared to your businesses. No, <laughs> we no, really? You know, but we've got to start somewhere. I've got a small team around me, and what I What I think is very important, and I, I say this not i've got no right to say this in the business space but I've, I've learned it in life to be true recognize the areas that you are weaker at recognize what you don't know about and bring people in to to sort that so i've got people i got someone uh, a fantastic a person called ella who is uh, amazing at product products product design uh, uh finding products within the beauty space she's done an amazing job of, we're working with an amazing factory that we're working on the bath bombs I've got people that understand marketing properly what people that understand the business side of it and how much the things cost how much does that you know what do we price it at so i've just realized but what i'm not good at and get people in to come and help me you know the bit i understand i do understand the social media side so i kind of lead quite a lot on that because i kind of get it it's just kind of incorporating into my into my life but yeah it's it's pretty scary i mean especially we're running into christmas we're planning the christmas it's a very important thing we think about doing pop-up might we do a pop-up shop and stuff like that i mean it's all a bit scary uh, and you have to invest in your own business clearly but it's exciting, right? Me I, mean, I need you to, to. I need so. to I keep. I to keep <laughs> listening to your podcast, but I need you to give me some expert. Now need <laughs> am doing Dragons Day. I need some expert advice to help me make it into a massive business. You know what? <laughs> you know, what,
1: I, you know it, it's, it's it's fascinating and it's amazing that after five months, it's been yeah. You figured out yeah. already one of the most important lessons about business, which the best in this country, the best entrepreneurs in this country, have also figured out. If you look at Ben Francis, Julian Hearn, who's you know the founder of Huel, all of those individuals um, realized that they weren't. Either, it's one of two things, either competent to be the CEO or they didn't want to be. And you you have to want to do it. And you have to also think you're capable at doing it. Now, it's the same for me in my business. Like there were so many things that I either didn't want to do or didn't feel competent enough in doing. And had I not had that self-awareness and had I let my ego say, no, you have to be the CEO and you have to be involved in everything. There's 0% chance I would have succeeded. And I'm seeing this tremendous, really positive shift amongst founders who are getting out the way yeah. Of their own sort of inexperience, yeah. especially young ones. Because when you're young, again, ego comes in. Yeah. And the other thing that happens, which I talk about in this podcast, and the other critical mistake you make, is when you're a new entrepreneur or an inex- experienced, you don't think you have the right to mm. hire super mega experienced people. Because yeah. you think, why yeah, would they okay, want to yeah. come and work here yeah. in yeah. our little, you know, social media company yeah. or our bath bomb company in this yeah. cupboard that we're we're working out yeah, of? Yeah, why yeah. would yeah. they want to be here? Yeah. So you make the critical mistake of hiring your mate, Dave. Yeah, okay, yeah, who's, yeah, yeah. Who, you know... No, I don't have any Daves in the team. Well, I made that <laughs> mistake. You know, and, and you do it because of, you know... And, and that, again, is a critical, fatal mistake. And I... Those are the, probably the two most important things. Business is all about, you know, by definition, the word company means a group of people. That is literally what ends up mattering the most—the group of people that is—and it took me probably three to four years to figure that out in my journey.
0: So, you, so it's the most important thing for me now to make sure I got the right team. Hundred
1: percent. Moving forward, it's the it's the it's what you're you are you aren't mm. every. So think about what you've created. You've created this idea, this bath bomb vegan idea. Where did that come from? Mm. What the genius in it? Where did it come from? It came from a person, mm. the finance, the way your f- business is r- run in terms of its finance, the strategy, the marketing, the mm. investment you raise, all of these things, the decisions, mm. they're all gonna come from mm. the people. Yeah. A business and a- the product is all a manifestation of people. Apple's a great example of that. He was a great example of that. And if you have, and I view yeah. it as a starting 11, if you're starting 11, and it, your starting 11 is going to war with Lush, right? If your starting 11 does not match up, you will fail. Yeah. And so and I, it took me three years to get to the point where I realised that I am just a recruitment business. <laughs> I wow, am. Okay. Um,
0: I I do you see what, you what mean. I mean? I think you're probably understanding. I will or win based <laughs> yeah. on
1: my recruitment. Yeah. We I are a recruitment mean, yeah. company. And I remember the day I stood in front of Social Chain and said that, like, if we know the people are the most important thing, why don't we have an internal recruitment that team? That
0: is a really, it's a really interesting, because I, I kind of, I realized that having the right people was important, but I, I quite haven't viewed it in that way. Everything of how comes from that. Yeah.
1: everything comes from yeah. that. It's and a very you, good point. As you get big, as the company gets bigger, um, your role as a founder is somewhat diminished. That scares
0: go- me a little because we are. I mean, we are very. You know, we're still small, but we are. I'd say we're doing very well. We're growing very quickly. We're expanding quickly our range and etc. That scares me. That growth quite a bit. Yeah, because then that's a, again unc- being an uncomfortable zone. It's like, well, how do we manage who needs to come in and do this and it's a bit scary so you just go
1: have to go find really good people and and one point in my business maybe year three or four we hired a lady called katie leeson from mediacom who'd been doing this for 15 i don't know 10 years whatever she went and went back to mediacom and hired all of her friends from mediacom who were also like double my age in some cases whatever almost double my age and they ran the business and i had no problems yeah they they, they were so experienced and had done this before. So what you're saying is don't let your ego get in the way. Yeah, and let people come bro, and do their thing. I flew off to New York. I had no problems. They solved all the yeah. problems in my business that I didn't even know were problems. Yeah. And I can, I can say, well, what if I hadn't made that decision? Mm. Well, before then, I hadn't made the decision. And my life was hell. Mm. Every day was hell. Like hell. I'd wake up in the morning, hell. And the thing that cured yeah. it was installing a group of people... Who had done this before and were really, really good. That, to be fair, when they accepted the job, I thought, why do they want to work here? Yeah. And those people, and and they they loved it, and they've grown. They, they've done it. They've grown as well, and the business is. Um, it's, it's really
0: interesting yeah. to hear you say that because I think re- we talk about work-life balance, right? I'm looking for an office space. The other thing I've realised is that I need to grow my own team. Yeah. So I'm actually now growing not just prescribed as one of their elements i'm growing my own team that's the kind of dr Alex brand team and i think a big part of i've come to that point realize i need to let go of certain aspects people can take over that they can do this part of it they can add and allow me to mm. basically free up my time to do the front-facing stuff which you talked about i think before yeah um so it is interesting i think i'm learning that it's taking me time. i think one of the things funny enough that i think has helped and obviously i, I know they're going to make mistakes this business i think yeah. i've here listening to enough to your podcast say that people make mistakes but one of the things that's helped is that working as a doctor. You know and accept that you are not a specialist in every area. But medicine's huge. So we have dermatologists, cardiologists, neurosurgeons, surgeons, obst- obstetricians. So I'm kind of quite happy for yeah. people to go like your specialty is that you do that, you do that. I'm kind of happy with that idea. You know, that's but, where you've but, got it. But, from. But, the fe- but the but the thing that I do fear a little bit. I still fear. I worry about letting things go a little bit. It's not that yeah. I just worry about not having sight over things. So I think that's what we're kind of building the, the brand of .dunus and having people help me allow us to do more. I'm just scared a little bit of letting
1: go of stuff. And it becomes a lot easier when you pass the buck to trusting mm. to trusted hands, mm. you, you'll always have the fear if you're passing any part of the responsibility of your business to a hand that you don't fully trust. Mm. What you wanna do, and this is exactly what happened in my business, is I passed it, passed it to hands that were better than me. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh, I'm And I always think this, I said this to my peer a few times, like in the company, in like, say, the video department or the studio, or whatever, the guy is better than me that runs the studio. So I never speak to him. And then yeah. Steve Jobs said the same. He said, your job as a CEO is to hire um, great people and they tell you what to do. And that, and if, and if you're still, you've still got trust problems in your business yeah. and you still aren't, you know, you're concerned about giving up responsibilities, then it's because you don't have the right people. Yeah. And so, again, it comes back to that point of that being... It turns out that that's everything and i didn't know it that's really useful advice me i'm years. Glad I, i'm not just attracted yeah, to you, no, I'm glad yeah i'm gonna take yeah. all that away well i took genuinely it took, genuinely, to know, honestly. It took me you. years and i had to witness the pain of the opposite okay. to realize and i don't i just pray you don't and i know i pray. So choose i need to sound myself with the right people and trust them people yes people way beyond the people you think you deserve in your business mm. at this time and that's what moves it forward mm. People that you think, why would they? That go get the global head of marketing of Lush, yeah. And your job as CEO is to sell them on the reason why it's better to be in this small, exciting agile startup than that big, boring conglomerate yeah. where you're a cog in a wheel. Yeah. That's the that's the pitch, right? I'm gonna write that down. <laughs> yeah, you're saving a pitch. <laughs> well, you've got to it anyway. But listen, Alex, you, you know you've given you give me tons of your time and um, reading about yourself, your journey. You know, I don't I don't watch Love Island. I've got to be honest, but um, so there's always that stigma when you think about oh, Love Island. It comes yeah. with a bit of a, a, a tainted brush. But as I delve further into your journey, I was just so inspired by everything, by how intelligent you are, by your radical empathy for people, which is again is quite rare these days. By your you're being so sort of obsessively purpose driven, which again is super rare, especially for someone that's been on Love Island. You know, I'm you don't have to say anything. I'm the one stereotyping um, and it's just so incredibly inspiring. And this book that you've written, Live Well Every Day, um, is a perfect. It's perfect because it's so inclusive. And it's so actionable. And it's so, it's, and that key word there is inclusive. When I read it, I felt like this isn't going to create a barrier to entry Mm -hmm. for anybody. Mm. And you're a doctor, so you could have easily just equated and done like word porn, Mm. but you made it really accessible and, um, actionable and broken down into key categories and you're you're conveying a critically important message to a society that needs to hear it right now so thank you thank Thank you for all of your work in the nhs very selfless and i mean that in and of itself is is you know tremendously commendable and thank you for all of the inspiration because you've certainly inspired me
0: well thank you so much for having me it's an honor to be on this podcast and i've learned a lot as well so thank you oh
1: amazing alex thank you so much